This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California and Silver Lake in Malibu, and created by Bob Forrest and Jared and Evan and Bob. And Aloe was created as a place where addicts can go to be treated with compassion rather than control. They treat co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They have amenities like you wouldn't believe. Surfing. Fucking sound bath meditation, equine therapy, and even the super spiritual sweat lodge. They have years and years and years of making sure people detox comfortably. So if you're coming off of heroin, you're coming off of benzos, you're coming off of alcohol, Aloe knows how to take care of you. Basically, if you're fucked and you're willing to go to Southern California to get help, I would totally recommend going to Aloe. Hello, Dopey Nation. My name is Patrick Ferguson. I'm the host of the Crash and Ride podcast. Crash and Ride is a long-form interview podcast where I talk to musicians who survived anxiety, depression, and addiction. The idea was that if I could get musicians to talk honestly and openly about their struggles, that we could share some experience, strength, and hope, and maybe start to get better. I'm a professional touring drummer and recovering addict based out of Athens, Georgia. I've been on tour since sometime in the 90s, and I've seen people who were really going through it, and I wanted to see if there was some way I could help. I had Dave from Dopey on episode 30. That was a few months ago. Episode 19, I talked to Riley Walker, and that was a great talk. Episode 37, I had Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers. And a particular interest to Dopey listeners, you might want to check out episode 27, where I talked to Christian Limbach from the Atlanta band Whores. He had a decade-long battle with heroin, and we really get down in it and talk about it. And I think Dopey listeners might take something away from that. You can hear any of those episodes and more at www.patreon.com slash crash and ride or just search for crash and ride on your favorite podcast app. So stay strong, Dopey Nation. And remember, loud guitars save lives. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the Dopey Patreon page. You go to www.patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast. Throw down a few bucks to help make the podcast happier, more joyous, and more free, unless you don't want to, in which case you don't. I'm totally flirting with original, unique Patreon material. Look for it this week. If you guys want Dopey Ski Hats, because I don't say beanies anymore. If you want dopey socks, if you want dopey stickers, Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. There's a big dopey shipment going out tomorrow. I've been crazy at work, so I'm a little bit swamped. So forgive me if you haven't gotten it. Also, all sorts of other dopey paraphernalia is available at the website, www.dopeypodcast.com. Enough with the ads. Here is the show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I'm very excited to have this next guest on the show. He is by no means a famous man, but he is very important to the history of Dopey and to me. I talk about, Brad, I talk about you a lot on the show. You listen to the show. Do you hear me talk about you a lot on the show? Yeah, I wouldn't say a lot, but once in a while you kind of admit that you stole the podcast from me just that like out of the blue all right just slow down you're jumping too far ahead first i'd like to introduce my old and dear friend and collaborator brad welcome back to the show 
Oh, thank you. You know, I uh, I was on was I on the first episode? You were on one of the first episodes. You were on lots of early episodes. Mm, I think I was on once. No, I think you were on at least three times. Because I remember, like, I, I had you call in a couple times to like criticize the show. And yeah. a couple times, I think, but who knows? Well, there, there was the one time when I, I was going to try and be your producer, so I was going to text you notes as you were going. Yeah. Do you remember that? I remember the concept, but I remember that w- there was a, an episode we did where my buddy John came in to do the show, and he played Tafe. sound effects. Yeah, take if. And, uh, uh-huh. and Chris was so ADD that he couldn't pay attention to the conversation. So the idea of us being able to field text notes while we did the show and do the show seemed like a, a stretch to me. Yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't working. We, we were doing it. It was like, well, you were, you were, you were blaming Chris that like, it was just throwing him off. And he's like, every time that you get a text, he would like, you know, shut down. And so, yeah, anyhow, we, 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 we iced that pretty quick, but, um, but then, yeah, and then I started talking to you guys, and uh, and I don't know, it didn't go anywhere, and I just, I, that was the last time we did it. So. Well, the best thing was that when you were trying to produce the show via text, I would yeah. stop the show and I'd say, "Wait, Chris, Brad doesn't think this is a good thing to talk about," and that's uh, and, well, yeah, it was so your fault. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the blame. You were, you were supposed to just like integrate into your flow, not like shut down the show. Listen, that's just how I do things. But more importantly, let's I, I, the story that I want to hear about is um is the origin it's you know the origin story of Dopey. Um yeah. so I have a very 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 uh shitty memory. So why don't and you don't. So why don't you tell the the story? Well, the origin story of uh of the podcast or of how we met or what what are you getting at? Well, I want to, first I want to hear the story about um, the podcast. Well, the podcast was my podcast that um, you were my drug addict friend. And so I thought, uh, you know, over many years, how long were you using at that point? There's like 20 I think ten or twelve or something like you know a good a good while <laughs> I had so, <laughs> I had used probably for you know like fifteen years at that point I think yeah a long time a real long time and for some reason I remained you know your friend of, of some nature and uh, you know I talked to you through all of your rehabs and you know I just I loved I loved the stories and and your stories and. Uh, and, you know, it just made me think about, you know, all the drug stories and, like, drug humor that I love. Just drug humor in general. Like, I could think of, like, scenes in movies and stuff. They're all, like, my favorite scenes. So I was like, well, maybe there's – I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I'd never heard of a drug story podcast. I was thinking about something like like The Moth, which is, like, a story slam kind of podcast where people would submit stories or – but I was thinking also, like, it would be – a thing maybe you and I could do, you would be the, the ex drug addict or a drug addict du jour. And I would be the straight guy, uh, who's never been a drug addict, but, uh, you've done you know, drugs. Between the two of us. Oh, I've done lots of drugs, but I've never had a, an addict thing. I've always like reached a point very quickly where I felt, you know, 
scared or bugged out if I, you know, was doing stuff too much. I just but, want to say that your story is, is making me very sad. So you're saying well, that the point was you wanted to do a, basically you wanted to do a show like Dopey with me where I was the addict and you were the not addict. But that's not what I remember was you wait, sent. But hold on. But hold on. But I, so, but I sent you. So what I sent you was what I could do. Like I'm like one day I was just home alone. I'm like, I'm just gonna open my laptop and I'm going to just start talking and see what happens. And so I just started talking and I was like, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I am going to talk to you and tell you about the podcast that I'd like to do. And I'm going to play some clips from things that are drug stories. And, but what I would actually like to do is have a talk show where we bring on famous guests and hear their drug stories and we could play clips from different things. And, but what I can do right now is kind of just throw to clips. So that's what I sent you. And I explained to you what it is and it's self-explanatory because that's all I talk about throughout the hour that I just kind of ramble on. And, uh, and then, uh, I never heard from you about it. Like, we I talked about it. I, what I remember is we talked about it. The fact that you live in California and I lived in New York came up for me as a stumbling block for doing the show. And I think I was using when you sent that to me. I remember yes, hearing using and I could tell that you weren't really engaging and you didn't actually probably listen to more than like probably you probably listened to like four minutes and I'm like, what the fuck? And, and you know. I think that's. I, your arm and went to bed. I think. So. Well, I don't think I jammed a needle in my arm, but I think I, I drifted off. I think that you had also played some famous people's stories in the mix. No, yeah, I did for sure. Yeah, I, I edited stuff in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but let me just okay, say. So then, well, how about that? How, how about? Can I ask you a question, Bradley? Wait, wait up, Brad. Brad. Yeah. yeah. How many times have I apologized about this in the past four years? Uh, many, and we're be- and we're past it. It doesn't sound to me like you're past it. By the way, this story, I feel like I'm going to start crying because here. Listen, yeah. the only reason why you're past it is because uh, you you made uh, this wonderful thing and have saved lives and made people's lives better. And I can't hold that against you. And uh, you know, I, I didn't really think we, we would ever do it. I didn't really think that we were going to do this thing. Right? I didn't. Like it was an idea, something I just kind of threw out there, but um, but when you did it with somebody else, and then tried to tell me that it wasn't my idea, and you really did try to tell me it wasn't my idea, uh, that was you know mind-boggling to me, and you know it was uh, painful. But I hurtful. told, but I told Chris it was your idea. Well, you gave me a whole different, you know. A whole different thing at first, and then you came around. You know that's what happened. Listen, I have to say that I don't remember denying that it was your idea. I remember telling Chris. I remember being on the phone with Chris. I remember Chris wanting to do something, and I said, my friend Brad had this idea, but Brad's not a drug addict. And I just thought it would be a way for Chris to come hang out, and it was. Well, maybe in your mind it was so far removed from what, what, you know, you thought I was trying to do that. It just was just like, you know, yes, it has to do with drugs, but so does lots of things. No, I'm going to say this. um, I'm going to say this. I apologize again for the billion. No, I apologize. I apologize again. And, um, 
I don't think I didn't I don't think I I consciously did it. Like I think it was the the kernel of the idea that what was dopey. It was the total prototype for dopey. But then because Chris was a you know, we were drug addicts telling our drug stories, it became something very different. Is really the point. Yeah. Right. But now I feel bad, you know? Now I feel bad. Well, good. You should. That's what I knew. That's the only reason you wanted to do this. You just wanted do to make. What? I've given you Come credit on and, and make you and make you uh, suffer. I I mean, you want to make me feel bad on dopey, and you've done it. So congratulations. No, I don't. Look. Yes. You wanted to do this, and I, let's be totally honest. Let's 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 kind of pull back the curtain for the dopey nation. You wanted to do this for shtick. We're doing shtick. No, I wanted to do it because I think that the or I don't want to do shtick. The origin of dopey is a story worth mm-hmm. telling, and people are constantly con- a you know, very painful story of 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 betrayal. Dude, so you're doing you're not doing shtick no, though. Just, just, you're not doing shtick. This is shtick. Okay. Yes. No. It's it's all it's it's a beautiful thing. Look, it's a beautiful thing. You save lives. You have thousands of fans that. Uh, consider at least consider getting well and uh and uh and maybe even if they're not considering considering it now might in some future date that they never would have otherwise and it's just an amazing thing so well i agree with you i can't be mad at that um and i think that the sky is still the limit on stuff that we can make and um you know you never know what is possible i also think that because chris and I were addicts, it drove him to be obsessed with doing the show. And I don't know that you and I would have done it every week religiously the same way Chris and I did. Yeah, I mean, yes. I, you know, I, I have very little faith that we would have followed through on it. Right. And, I mean, and under any circumstances. You have to admit that the most shocking part about Dopey is not the legion of fans. It is not the lives being saved. But it is the fact that there was such follow through. Uh, it is pretty shocking. I mean, it, it, it does, you know, kind of follow exactly your trajectory of, of getting off drugs. So your, your history of not following through was completely your history of being a rabid drug addict. And, uh, so it's, it's not mysterious or anything. Okay. Now, why don't you tell the dopey nation about our history? This is a great segue. No. Well, I said the word history, so, um, uh, yes. All right. So I, I don't know. How do you, 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 you tell it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you if you're right. Okay. So Brad and I years and years and years ago in about 1998, um, or 99, I think 98, we worked at a production company in Manhattan called Burley Bear Network, which I've mentioned on the show a few times. And Brad was an editor in there, and I was a production assistant. And I got the opportunity to uh, be like on-talent host guy. And then, I don't know. I don't even remember how we crossed paths, though, Brad. Do you remember? Well, I remember I, yeah, I remember I was, you know, doing just, you know, editing for different people. And then there was like just all these characters around who were like the Burly Bear primaries, which was like, you know, Danny Emery, who was on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, it was basically his company. And then a few other guys that he had started the company with. And like you were just like in, in some like bullpen office with them, I remember. And I was. 
I walked in, you guys were all goofing around, probably, probably actually like smoking pot in the office or something. I don't know why, but you just like kind of like kind of grabbed on me and like, we are going to do things. We were going to like, I don't know what you had at the time, but we were like, you wanted me to help you. Oh, you know what it was? It was the lunchbox. It was the lunchbox. It was my great. You had heard heard that I was good. And so you just seized on me. And, uh, and then that was kind of that for whatever reason. And Dopey Nation, Dopey Nation, just so you know, the lunchbox was a game show that I invented uh, where you have, it was like a contestant goes to a public place and he has a hidden camera in his bag and there's other cameras around monitoring the contestant and he wears a hidden microphone and he goes up to strangers or her, he or she goes up to strangers in Central Park to get them mm-hmm. to say a list of words. Uh, yeah. And we did, you, you went out and shot with a couple of your friends. Was, uh, was Aurora one of them? No, I don't think so. No, me and Aurora were not speaking. It was uh, it was Regis Philbin's daughter. Yes, it was, and uh, and some some other weird guy, and John Wetterow. It, okay. it was John Wetterow. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. John just uh, John just texted me that his girlfriend is like, you should listen to this podcast, and it was dopey. Oh, that's hilarious. I know, and I've told stories about me and John and Todd. No, it was me and John and Devin going to see, going to a Woodstock festival and and cooking an ounce of mushrooms uh, over a burning village voice in a can of like canned chili, and we all tripped out and in, in, uh, at the the original site of Woodstock, and wow. and also uh, John John also was uh, gave me a dose. It was the first time I ever punched anybody in the face. Was tripping on John's acid. John's probably a good potential dopey guest actually well i want to hear that story well i mean not right now but but put that in the uh i'll tell us i'm going to tell it really fast i was 17 we had a party at jim's house john gave me a bunch of acid to sell for people i took a bunch of doses and some kid went up to me and started annoying me and i said leave me alone or i'm going to punch you in the face and he wouldn't leave me alone he was like oh 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 and i punched him in the face and um i can't imagine being violent on acid I know I've never been violent since, so it was one of those things. Mm, that's crazy. So then you and I—I I thought the lunchbox wasn't as good as it should have been, but it was still pretty cool. Yeah. Have you seen Billy on the Street? That's kind of like the lunchbox. But it's not a game show, right? It's just him talking to people. Well, he gives people money if they kind of perform. No, I've never if seen. Kind of, if, yeah, it's actually it's actually really funny. Um, but yeah, but you know, you were ahead of, of, I think every, uh, hidden camera or man on the street game show. I think, I mean, I really think you were, well, I, didn't, I mean, it's time would come anyhow, but, uh, well, it didn't I, come I, for I, us. I don't think, I don't, I don't think that, um, anybody stole your idea. Like you stole mine, but, uh, but you were the originator. You can, you can have that. All right, this is not the story that I want you to tell. The more important story is you having to suffer my drug addiction. Yeah, so what happened was, uh, so then... The resentment was born many years ago and, and is still blossoming with other resentments. So, so what happened was, I guess we were thrown together to make a music video show, which was, you know, this was 
1999 late late 90s so music videos were still kind of a thing on tv like and it was in and what burly bear was was a block of programming that would be sent on vhs to college tv stations and it would just supply them with like a block of original programming uh for like a couple hours with like the commercials baked in and that's how burly bear would make their money so um one of the you know, one of the very simple shows that they had was just a block of uh, music videos. And, and so and they let me produce got, it. They let me produce it and host it. And they gave yeah. me a box full of videos. And the top video in the box was a video by KRS-One. And, um, mm. and I looked in the Village Voice and KRS-One was playing at Tramps, which was an amazing club in New York that since closed down. And I called up his manager and I said, can we come interview KRS-One and shoot the live performance? And they were like, sure. And, uh, and me and DK went to Tramps to shoot the KRS-One performance and interview. And uh, it was like, great, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, uh, it and was. that's when me and Brad were like, we don't want to do a video show. Yeah, so we asked Danny Amory if we could do like a music magazine show where we just kind of take some cameras and run around New York and go see shows and try and get interviews with the artists and and, uh, and Dave would host and we did, had no idea what it would actually be, uh, but Danny didn't seem to care either way and he <laughs> gave us a budget. Uh, what would he give us? Like five or ten thousand dollars an episode? I think it was more like around? I feel like it was like thirteen hundred dollars an episode. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like nothing. It was like nothing. Oh. Well, we didn't spend any of it, right? It was just like us running around with cameras or your friends running around with cameras and you'd pay them like 20 bucks. No, something. no, I would pay my friends day rates and that was the whole thing. You know, and mm-hmm. then I'd have to pay you. But I guess you were... Oh, well, yeah. I, you weren't was, in the budget, though. Paid. You were staff. I was in the budget. Yeah. yeah. But I would pay my friends. That was it. Like yeah. DK and so, Ryan and, and, uh, and John. I would pay those guys. I mean, they were, you know, kind of heady times because it was, it was the dot-com boom. And, like, so people were just kind of, like, throwing around money. And, and we got to kind of ride that wave for a little bit. And uh, so Danny's like, yeah, go ahead and do whatever you want. And whatever we did, which was, like, we, we, what, we shot, like, the Flaming Lips. We shot, we, we shot Pavement, Beanie yeah. Man, the Flaming Lips, fucking... Uh, Eric B and Rakim, De La Soul. We did a whole De La Soul special. Fucking, mm. um, I can't think of it. Oh, we Built to Spill. We did an expose on how to get signed to a, to a label. We did an expose on indie rock. The we did be- one on reggae in New York. Yeah. Which was your favorite. No, my favorite, uh, my favorite, my favorites were KRS-One and the indie rock special. But the 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 funniest one and the reason that dopey kind of exists and all of this stuff happened was because we we wound up doing a two part like long form documentary on the history of drugs i think you had stopped working on the show then but we did no, sh- i worked on that i did that we did the history sure. of drugs and yes. the craziest part Crazy. was that it was all my own personal drugs that we shot for the yeah. the episode and the well, other that's the only reason why you did it because you wanted to do that you just wanted to go home and shoot your drugs on your table that you were so proud of i mean that was part of it but it was also just like it was it was a compelling story you were just as interested in drug culture as i was you just weren't oh, as absolutely. interested in drugs yeah i wasn't interested in actually living in drug culture 
but the reality of it is much darker and scarier than than the the fun rock and roll lifestyle that that I that I kind of you know thought I wanted. Well, the the other interesting but, thing is that when I met Brad, I was uh, I think I was no I hadn't been doing heroin at all. You know when we met I hadn't when been, we first met no no so Brad and I were the closest of friends as I became a heroin addict. And Brad and I were partners on this show as I became addicted to heroin. And, um, and Brad had to deal with me on a daily basis. And, and it started almost innocuously where I would get dope and I would fall out in the, in the edit suite and I would nod out when we would, when I would be interviewing people, but it just, in the beginning there was still enough energy to carry me through. And it's kind of that classic opiate addict thing where like 18 months, 20 months, two years in is when you can't do it anymore. And Mm -hmm. I, I think I had that exact trajectory. I don't know. I think it was a lot faster than that. Okay. Well, I think it's probably a, a solid year. Um, but in that time, like I had zero idea about drug addiction, about heroin addiction. Like I, you know, I think that's where, where you kind of, you know, told me what nodding out meant. I never, never heard that term before. You know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about addiction. So I would like just totally support you in it and enable you like, to an insane degree, I'd like, you know, give you money and, and, uh, and bail you out of all these situations and did not really feel like it was a big deal, but it was definitely a big deal. You didn't know any better. You also did a bunch of drugs with me in the beginning. Well, I, yeah, I tried, I tried becoming a heroin addict with you, but uh, I couldn't, I couldn't hack it. Thank God. It just didn't take, it was rock and roll. Like we could have been a band and you would have been, we would have been 20 year old, 20 somethings in a band and, uh, and you'd be fucking up and I would be completely oblivious to what that means. I mean, it was, it was the same kind of thing. It you was. Know? And they, like, paid- we got to keep, we got to keep the band going. We got to keep this thing alive. Doesn't matter. I'll bail you out. We got to, we have the show to do. It's the same thing. But you definitely realized at some point within the year to two years that I was not going to propel you anywhere. And you bailed on the whole thing because it was like, it was probably very boring to deal with somebody who was constantly fucking everything up. Well, boring is generous. I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond boring. It's like, you know, completely, you know, debilitating and makes it, you know, it was impossible to make the show. It was impossible to deal with anything and get anything done. We were we were failing, um, and uh, you were failing. You were you know it wasn't going to keep going. And Burley Bear was failing. Like the dot the dot com boom had busted in that time, and Burley Bear uh, was uh, it was right there, you know, as one of those one of those uh, video streamers of the future that that busted with all the rest of them, and. Uh, and yeah, so that all happened at once. So it's I left when that happened. Uh, but um, do you remember? I remember like one thing I remember really well. It was like that I would get I would I would it was like experiencing withdrawal, uh, doing work there. Like I would come into work and I wouldn't have dope, and I knew I was on the clock for when I was going to get sick, and I would sit at the phone dialing the dealer's numbers praying that they call me back um well you've talked about you know you know all the because we had like all these opportunities to go 
like you were asked to host like weird kind of like spring break. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Burley bear spring break. Yeah. Thing, like their MTV spring break version of yeah. Burley bear. Like, yeah. So when I would go with you to do that, but you'd be dope sick the whole time or, you know, trying to score stuff like that. We went to Jamaica. Oh like, my God. Uh, Tell that story. That's the fucking classic story. Well, I, I wish I understood it better, but for, you know, for some reason, like the Jamaican tourist bureau wanted Burley bear to go. It sounds like a scam Jamaica. in retrospect. Doesn't it sound like a scam? Yeah, no, it was, it was shady as hell because it was all these shady characters that were kind of taking us around, uh, these, these areas of Jamaica that we were, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the, what the game was, but they just wanted to, you know, be able to advertise on Burley Bear or, you know, have some kind of relationship. So they sent, Burley Bear sent some people down and they sent us for some reason because I think, we were like the nearest warm bodies. No, and, it was because they no knew, how to, they knew I loved reggae. They, they sent us because yeah. they knew I loved reggae music. But that's crazy because what they needed was like, you know, like salespeople, like, you know, <laughs> people to close to close the deal with these Jamaican uh, wheelers and dealers. And we, we were like, get w- totally out of our element. And, uh, and you were high and I was useless, but, uh, but we went there and, uh, and I just watched you, you know, try to score drugs for wow. a bunch of days. And that's the, that's the one. Ver- and that's what all these things were like. No, but that story was we were going to Jamaica for five days and it was before nine 11 and I brought yeah. I brought like sixty five bags of heroin uh, with me on that trip, and I brought them all in my pocket. You know, I remember being at the airport with 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 six and a half bundles because I probably had done uh, the half of the seventh bundle that morning uh, on the way, and yeah. uh, and I was feeling very wealthy when we got there. You know, and I was just doing dope willy nilly. And then there's like two days left, and I fucking run out of dope. And I just start freaking out and I go down to the beach to start talking to Jamaicans about getting heroin. I did my crazy or my, my classic street line when I needed heroin, which is going up to strangers and say, I don't want to freak you out, but do you know where I can get some heroin? And, yeah. and in Jamaica, they don't have heroin, or at least where, I was, where we were, they didn't have heroin. They had Coke. They just had mm-hmm. Coke and bad weed, which is depressing as hell. Um, but so I remember being like, don't you have anything down? And they had Valium and they gave me like, I bought like all the Valium I could get. So I just mm-hmm. started taking Valium and you and me went on some booze cruise and you yeah, got drunk I and I just started taking the Valiums and I fell out on the deck of the boat. Was, no, you know, I took, I took the Valium, I took, I took Valium too. And I thought, you know, you know, I'll take Valium. I get seasick, but I, I think the Valium will help with that. And instead it just made it com- like way worse. And I was like, like the worst seasick I've ever been or anybody could ever be. And so I was just like splayed out on the boat the whole time. And I don't know what you were doing, but I w- it just fucked me up. I was like almost unconscious. And then the next day we flew home. Then on the plane, I went into full on heroin withdrawal mm-hmm. on the plane. And I started trying to sneak into first class. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I remember you were like in some kind of half catatonic state and, you know, kicking and, and literally kicking the seat in front of you, pissing off this guy in front of you and uh, stewardesses were coming by like every two minutes to like tell you to stop. And you were, I was really re- call it kicking you, because you actually makes your, your leg kick. I, it's, I think that's, that's what they say. And I was so uncomfortable and so sick 
that I, uh, I was like, I can't do it. And I, and I got out of the chair and I wandered up to first class and I've never flown first class before or since. Like I've never flown first class and I got in the chair. Right. And I put Mm -hmm. a blanket on me and I'm just shivering in the chair. And the lady's like, you can't sit here. You got to go back to coach. And, uh, and I went back to coach and then I went back to first class and she goes, I just said, you can't sit here. And I said, listen, lady, I'm really sick. Just leave me alone and let me sit here. And she did. I think I can even feel it in my body right now telling you the story. And it's, it's how many years ago is that? It's, it's, it's more than 22 years ago, right? Oh my God. Yeah. It's 21 years ago that that story oh, happened. Yeah. Well, I just remember like just watching, you know, your life get worse and worse. And, uh, I remember, you know, like when I first knew you, you had this, you had this like New York apartment that was, that was somehow, you know, in your family and it was your apartment that like your parents had kind of set up for you. And you had like this most amazing situation and, uh, you were like the luckiest, luckiest kid in the world. And then a year later, I, I go to your your place, and it has basically been taken over by drug dealers. And like you're in there with like you know like three like <laughs> three Spanish drug dealers who are selling ecstasy out of my apartment. Dealers, yeah, like, yeah, like sitting at a table. You know, it's it's like it was like a movie. You know, we're like, like playing I dominoes. Know, <laughs> I don't know if he, I don't know if like the guy was like you know making a deal when I walked in or something. Like he's sitting at a table with another guy. The guy does they do something, and the, the guy leaves. He's just sitting near the table, kind of holding court, and there's two other guys, you know, sitting by you, and you're just sitting there, like, you know, happy as can be. Well, the funny and, thing, uh, and, and, and I'm supposed to like sit there and hang out with you, right? You know? and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, Where man? are you going? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm, I'm gone. And, uh, and that was pretty much, you know, that was, that was all I could take. So that was, that, I remember that being like probably the last time I came over. And uh, I remember I got super sick. I went into full on withdrawal and I told you and you like called the supermarket or something and they delivered me this box of delicious food. You like sent me soup and crackers and bread and shit. It was the nicest thing ever. Do you remember that? Oh, no, because I don't think that was me. It was definitely you. <laughs> it doesn't sound like me. It doesn't sound like you, but it was totally you. Um, no, and Brad, nice Brad was a great friend. And um, the fucked up thing to me is like I do this show. I do the show that I stole from oh, Brad. Wait, let me just let me just roll back a second. What? So what was that situation with the guy? Like you basically had you had a deal with with the drug dealer that they could use your space and you'd get drugs. And and how long did that go on? Like what what was that arrangement? Um, basically, it was the son of my neighbor across the hall. And, mm-hmm. and something had gone wrong in her house and he was bugging out and he was like, I need a place to keep the safe. And I said, I'll let you keep the safe here if you give me X amount of money every month. And, um, and, and he would give me Coke and ecstasy too. And I mean, that was when I was shooting just straight Coke when I couldn't get dope and I would, and I would, and I was selling ecstasy around the city. I mean, that was a really like crazy time because I wasn't just doing heroin. It was a weird time you know most of my drug addiction was just me doing heroin in a room but uh because i was connected to those guys they also had killer butt they had a lot of good weed and um and i was doing a lot of ecstasy uh i had like a month where i did a bunch of ecstasy i remember 
I, w- I went to a Halloween party with like a hundred pills and I sold them all and I took a bunch of pills and then, and that was like, there was a period where I took a bit of ecstasy. Um, I really liked how ecstasy made me feel, but it was, it was just almost too strong. It wasn't, it wasn't a drug that I could do on the regular because the next day it was too much for me. Right. No, yeah, no, you're, you're drained of all of your life force. I do remember, I mean, my favorite, I mean, it's, it's funny because I live this total suburban middle-class life now. Um, I have four and a half years and I do this podcast and even though the podcast is about, and I work in a deli and even though the podcast is about drugs, addiction and dumb shit, I often feel totally disconnected, um, from what I've done, you know, from the way I was or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like makes sense. this conversation has really brought it back. Like I feel it, like I can feel it in my arms and stuff. Um, this kind of weird chill. Um, because I, I mean, I was in bad shape, right? I mean, you knew me in bad shape. Well, yeah, it's funny when, when you talk about it on the podcast and especially even like, you know, more recent times closer to now, you, you really downplay like how, how bad you were. And I I guess, I guess when you live in a world of other drug addicts, you are a garden variety. I'm totally just a garden variety drug addict, but I was bad. But, but your, but your life was just completely, you know, bereft. It was, it was just doing drugs. Like you didn't have anything else. You didn't have a job. You didn't, you didn't go anywhere. You, you know, for a long time, you just did drugs. But I, Dave, uh, is, are we are we like going off on stuff that we care about and like and and is this just us? These are dopey stories. No, these are dopey uh, these, stories. These are good. This is good. Yeah, these, know, people will let us know, right? They'll I guess they'll let us know the hard way. The more important piece is yeah. that after that was the high point of my drug addiction. You know that lasted like two years, and then I got the fired. High point of like of like it being on the up, like you were having fun with it. Exactly. I mean, it, right. it, then it, then it tailspin to to eleven years or more of nothing. You know, fourteen yeah. more years of nothing. Eight years in Los Angeles just on methadone. I mean, just tell them what it was like living with me in California. Well, okay. So you you moved to California with with your girlfriend. Do we use your no, girlfriend's yeah, name? No, we don't. With your girlfriend, and she was like your sugar mama, and you guys lived poorly in a very small uh, duplex in uh, Echo Park. It was kind of a, a cool place, actually. Echo Park, California is a cool uh, Not It wasn't Los that Angeles. cool then, though. Well, where, where you guys were, like, it's kind of block to block, and your block was sketchy as hell. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Like, where, where your house was was super sketchy, and you, you were a big part of that sketch, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and she would go to work, and you would stay home and, and do drugs and watch uh, The Sopranos and Lost, yeah. right? and eat Pretty ice much. cream sandwiches, yeah. And take walks to Vons to get an ice cream sandwich. Yeah. Um, and that was it. So I would come over there. And it's just, it's just funny because, like, it, it was the same thing, like, when I would go to your apartment in New York. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm very sensitive. Like, I, I know this about myself from this, from dealing with you, that I would come to your house and being there with you, I would feel oppressed. Like, I would feel like a, like a, like a spiritual uh, as a crushing inside <laughs> being in that place with you. And I would have to get away. 
Yeah, well, it was bad. I was in bad, bad shape. Yeah, but you know, some people can just hang. I, I mean, and that's that's just it's it's just an interesting thing. Like you know, why you know I I think about that personally because you know I always I always did identify as you know from a fairly young age from like you know I probably smoked pot for the first time. Well, I definitely smoked pot for the first time in, in eighth grade. And I always just wanted to identify as a pothead, and then I wanted to be, you know, like a hippie kind of styled, you know, drug taker. I was into the Grateful Dead and, and Pink Floyd and shit like that. And uh, and I just just kind of identified with rock and roll culture and drugs and stuff, but I never had, you know, the heart for it. And, you know, thank God, you know. Totally. Uh, also, though, in that period... It was beyond any sort of rock and roll culture. It was total, uh, it wasn't even debaucherous. It was total bereft. It was like I would be on a handful of pills, a, a bottle of methadone, and, and like if I could afford a bag of dope, I would take a bag of dope. And it would be just, I'd be in a bathrobe watching Lost and, and taking yeah. bong hits. You but know I, what I mean? Dude, I could get behind that. I've like kind of had a, uh, uh, a good career and uh, it's taken, you know, some uh, ambition, right? But I've never been an ambitious person. Like I, I, I could, I could be happy just like staying home and watching TV all day. Right. You know, like if if that was afforded to me somehow. Right. Like if I got super rich, I would not work. I would not work. Right. Period. I would. Uh, I would not. Well, I'm crazy uh, so, with this so, stuff. So, so the fact that you know, I you know, apply drugs to that, and that's a perfect lifestyle. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But that's a weird thing, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. you think, you know, it's like I I I love watching TV as much as anybody and doing nothing yeah. as much as anybody, but I'm super driven. And maybe I think I've always been super driven, but I'm also just like playing catch up big time, you know? Um but I think, you know, I just I think that these stories are worth telling because I often talk recovery, which is a good thing to talk. And I don't think if you had asked me when I was in those stories if I ever thought I would ever find recovery, there's no way that I would have. You know, no, I, recovery no. was nowhere near me when you and I uh, were in that those periods. I, I was such a fucking miserable drug addict. It wasn't even a possibility. You know, mm-hmm. it was not close. So the fact that I could get sober and uh, and change. It's like it's a real testament to like the way humans are built, and that any drug addict can do it. Because you never would have thought that I could do it. Yeah, I would never. I never thought you were going to get at a certain point. I thought you would never get better, except for I did have the notion that if you ever had a kid, that you would that you would not continue to be a, a piece of shit if you had a kid. That it was not in you, in your upbringing, in your in yourself that you. I thought that that would be the thing. Um, I just could not imagine you carrying on like that. Um, and it was true. It was also, I think, two things. Like, yes, the only reason why you got better is because you had a kid and also because you just, you aged out. Like right. I think a lot of people do, right? So it was kind of having a kid later, well, you were in your mid, late 30s? I was the same, I was 35. You were 35. So, yeah. So you were, you know... You were, but I didn't get clean so when it was I was a kind of a confluence. Of, I didn't of, get uh, clean then. I got clean six years later. I, I was trying to get clean for 
the six you years. Were trying. Yeah. You were really trying. Yeah. You did you just didn't know that like the key was to give up to give really actually give up drugs, like give up weed. Yeah. Um you didn't you just would not let that go. I know. I know. Yeah. So how so now um, now let's 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 move past our past stories and how great mm-hmm. I'm doing now and the fact that I stole Dopey from you and and let's move on to how great Dopey is. Yeah. Just briefly. Well tell I, them I, how I tried great to it is. Some of that earlier. It's you know, it's how amazing is 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 Dopey that that uh I mean Let me ask you this. It's it's not it's not even like I don't even know what you do anymore, you know? It's like it's not really about dopey stories and you're not like preaching recovery i don't know what it is but like it's people fucking love it well you listen to it you're a big time dopey listener i know i i, I listen to every episode and every it's single like, episode now, well, i fall asleep to every episode well that's not good all right bradley uh, you gotta go yeah. what was that sound that was like oh, the yeah, sound that, that was, times that, up that was, a, that was a band playing me off all no, right i was just, i just picked up a guitar uh uh Automatically, uh, without Plunk, thinking, plunking Sorry. away in the edit suite. So yeah. up next, we have we have wall to wall Jews on Dopey these days. We had mm. you know, handsome Dick was totally uh, as he was old Jewish rocker, and you are a, a terrific specimen of Semitism and um, or Semiticness. I wouldn't say Semitism; it's Semiticness, right? Um, Seminicity. I don't think that's a word. And up next, we have this dude named Asher who um, is in recovery, and he, he runs some treatment stuff. So are you excited to hear Asher? Well, wait. Why is he on the show? I don't know. He's, a, he's an addict. He's an alcoholic and an addict. And he runs some treatment stuff. He's an alcoholic and an addict, and he like helps addicts get clean. He runs some sober living. I met him. I met him through uh, Dopey. He was on, I was on his podcast, so he comes on Dopey. Does that that's, that's reason enough? Does that sound like an enthusiastic introduction? This is not a good introduction. I know. I'm just fucking with you. That's great. Uh, uh, I'm really excited to hear from him. Are, am I going to actually hear it uh, sitting on the phone with you? No. You're done. This is it for you. <laughs> Do you have anything oh, else really? you want to say to the Dopey Nation before you're gone? Uh, no. That's no. it? Yeah, fuck off. Fuck off? I, 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 no. I, <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrible uh, message. No, I love, I love, I love every each and every one of you, and do not fuck off. Yeah, uh, uh, everybody, uh, I, I wish the best for you, Dopey Nation, and uh, try to get better, try to stay well, get sober, listen to Dave, listen to his don't uh, listen, preaching. don't listen to listen me, to Dave's constant preaching and and uh, don't listen and to proselytizing me. about uh, uh, recovery and, and recovery and uh, no, uh, uh, you know. God bless each and every one of them. Oh, God. This is the worst sign-off I've ever heard in the history of fucking Dopey. But thank you, Brad. I don't have, I don't have a prepared speech. Okay. Uh, I appreciate uh, you coming on. I love you. I'm sorry I, I stole you. the podcast from you. But if it wasn't for no. you, there would be yes. no Dopey. All right. Well, if the Dopey Nation can uh, you know, show some appreciation as well, that would be cool. Yeah, all praise and, and, and love due to Brad. Because without Brad, there would be no Dopey. Yeah, it's just a small altar, nothing too fancy. All right, thank you, Bradley. All right, bye. Bye. So that was my old and dear friend, Bradley. Love having Brad on the show. I love all dopey memory lane. It just reminds me of how far I've come. And, uh, you know, someone said to me today, uh, 
do I have any regrets? And I've always, I have tons of regrets, but they said, would you change anything in your life? And obviously the first thing that pops into my head is I wouldn't become a drug addict. But the truth is, if I didn't become a drug addict, I wouldn't have my life and I wouldn't have my kids and I wouldn't have my family. So I think, um, I also liked, I liked a lot of the time that I did the drugs and I really like who recovery made me into. So I'm going to say that I wouldn't change that stuff, but I would have rather been a better guitar player and I would have rather pursuing music at some point, but I like, like my life. Anyway, next up we have this dude. He is a former cokehead, alcoholic, in recovery. He also happens to be the first rabbi ever to come on Dopey. He does a podcast called Showing Up with Asher G. Asher Gottesman. All right. So a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, this man came to my father's apartment, and we were supposed to record Dopey, and we were supposed to record his podcast. I'll say his name. It's Asher Gottesman. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. Or welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. I had the fortunate, distinct pleasure of chewing nicotine gum with Asher and like tripping out. Like I was like, <laughs> it was like shooting meth for me. <laughs> Four years clean chewing nicotine gum was like serious. You don't, do you, are you chewing it now? I'm not chewing it right now, but I may chew it during the show. We'll do you get, happens. do you get that rush? I don't get that rush anymore. You know, it kind of works like, Benzos or drugs in general, right? You, the more you use, the less you get. When you started chewing nicotine gum, did you get the rush or was it just to replace the cigarettes? So it was really interesting. I actually quit smoking in a spiritual way. It's very weird to say. I had a guy named Ralph, unfortunately he's passed away, that couldn't get sober. And I actually gave him $20 and I said, go downtown and go get high and get it the fuck out of my life. I can't do this. You anymore. want you wanted Ralph out of your life. I wanted Ralph out of my life. Well, you, was Ralph somebody that you were trying to help? Yeah, Ralph was somebody who I loved. I was so close to. I actually confiscated from him a thousand eighties. Oxycon. Yes, Oxycon. I never. I, I never did an Oxycon. Oh, really? Me, but, ne- me neither. Okay. I've done Percocet, Vicodin, and some of the other ones, but I never did an Oxycon. So I confiscated. That was about I, I don't know forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of pills. Wow! And flushed it down the toilet. Where were they? In his house? They, no, they were in my sober living. So he's living in your sober living. He's got fifty thousand dollars worth of Oxycon in, in the house. In the house. And how did you find them? I did a ser- I did a search. So you show up for a random search, and he has forty or fifty thousand dollars worth of pills in your sober house. Now I only found this out afterwards because there are pills. There were a thousand pills, and he was crying while I was flushing it down the toilet. Well, he had the option to leave, or could you? Could he not leave with the pills? No, he couldn't leave with the pills. So he was going to lose the pills. It was the pills were done. So tell me the story of Ralph. We're so, just gonna- so, so Ralph was a kid from an Orthodox family, sweetheart of a kid, probably one of the best manipulators I ever met, would get all his drugs from doctors. And I threw him out of our sober living. I got him into a treatment center. He got thrown out of that. And I'd pick him up every time. And he was just a sweet kid. And yet he was... A great drug addict. I don't know, or bad drug addict. Well, there's lots of sweet. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of sweet. And finally, I said to him, Ralph, here's the deal. I can't do this anymore. You're killing me. And here's twenty dollars. Go downtown and go get high and call me when you're ready. And he goes. And I walked away actually. And he says to me, You know what? I'm ready. And I said, Okay. And he detoxed on a couch. And I sent him to program. 
what was it called? It was a 90-day program in barracks, basically. It was a free program. It was, well, I can't even remember the name. It was in Castaic Lake. It's not no longer. And That's California, Castaic Cal- Lake? Castaic Lake is in California, and it was an alternative sentencing program. It was free. And there was no drugs there. You know, there was no pills there. There was no dual diagnosis there. Literally, you lived in barracks and you went to meetings. And he called me up and he said to me, Ash, I got to say thank you because not only am I two years sober, but I got two weeks off cigarettes. Because they don't let you smoke there. (laughs) Well, no, this is, no, this is, no, this is two years later. This is, he, he smoked, he, he actually didn't smoke there. They got out of there and smoked. And he said to me, I got two years, and I, at that moment, I was like, when am I going to have to get emphysema? And I was already. Because you're smoking, you're, how much were you smoking? I was smoking a pack a day. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and fucking Ralph gets two weeks, and you're smoking, and you were, Ralph shamed you into quitting, basically. Ralph shamed me into quitting, and I actually was speaking at a meeting that, that, that night, and all I spoke about was quitting smoking. <laughs> so how did it become a spiritual thing? Because. To me, it was the moment he said it, I had that l- bottom, and it was just, to me, it was spiritual, because I was able to hear from somebody that I was in the reverse position of, or thought I was in the re- reverse position of, which kind of was a lot of lessons that I can get into, uh, thinking when I started working with drug addicts and alcoholics in recovery with my centers, I thought I was saving lives, and I, I've quickly learned that I'm only here to help people help themselves. Right, and because you can't save anybody. No, and I, yet I had the savior complex, and I was you know, bigger than life, and I'm so great, and I was knocked, knocked off that pedestal many times. And re- yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's hard to get on a pedestal without getting <laughs> knocked off. You know? Yet Ralph said this to me, and I was like, wow. And I just quit. And I, you know, I don't know, Groucho Marx or somebody said, I've, it, it, sm- quitting smoking is easy. I've done it a million times. You know? <laughs> so right. I just quit. 30 days later, I was like, oh, shit, I want to smoke. And I just picked up nicotine gum. When was that? Six years ago, seven years ago. So now you're hooked on the nicotine of nicotine gum. Or you I, just like it? I, I like it. I, no, I'm probably hooked on it. I, I quit it for a life insurance exam two years ago. Uh-huh. And then I stopped for about two years. And then I just picked it up one day and I haven't stopped again. I know Bob Forrest uh, loves nicotine gum. And I know Mark Marin is fucking hopeless. Oh, maybe he quit the nicotine gum. I think Marin quit the nicotine gum. <laughs> but um, I know that I loved smoking, loved smoking. Um, but I never saw myself as going to be a lifelong smoker. I never thought that could be. Right. I never saw myself as a lifelong drug addict either. But um, And I couldn't stop smoking. And in the end, I quit smoking with um, one of those bullshit kind of like the store-bought vapes, the you know the blue ones, the <laughs> yeah. fake cigarettes, and that's how I quit smoking. I didn't consider nicotine gum because I your nicotine gum was good though. It had like a good flavor. It, it, every piece of nicotine gum I ever had before that wasn't good, and I couldn't get hooked on the vape because it was just too messy. 
for me. Yeah. The blue was the thing that was satisfying about cigarettes was smoking. Right. The smoke, the burning, all that shit. I loved that shit. I I liked the speedy feeling of the nicotine gum, but not enough. Like I'm it, that shit bugs me out. Like I'm a nervous person. You know, like if I get more speedy, I like the idea because I could lose weight probably quickly on that shit. <laughs> I think it's a good appetite suppressant. I don't think I ate dinner that night <laughs> when we did the show. I'm serious. Um, but yeah, I think I thought about getting like I haven't I haven't used drugs in a long time. But when I was on, I was like maybe I should get some clonopin <laughs> or something because the nicotine gum was very strong. But. Asher is a very interesting person, uh, a crazy diverse background, um, but the way you qualify for dopey is you're a drug addict. I am. I, I, well, I open up my qualifications always saying I grew up like everybody else in this room, the son of an Orthodox rabbi. Right. <laughs> so, well. But I am a drug addict. Yeah. You're the son I'm, of an Orthodox rabbi. Though. I, I, and I, you, I'm proof. You that, grew up in L.A. I grew up in Beverly Hills. I always say the poor parts of Beverly Hills. I and you're that proof that some Jews can be... Drug addicts. Right, exactly. Right, Jews can be drug addicts. There's, I mean, whenever I say that to a, I always like kind of act like Jewish drug addicts are rare to Jewish, <laughs> and it's like half of the people that I talk to are Jewish drug addicts. I mean, there's a lot of us. Yes, there's a lot of us. Um, what was the first like? How did you discover your own kind of? Ism, addictism, whatever. So my ism started with lying, actually. You know, as a kid, I think mine did too. <laughs> you know, as a kid, I told everybody I was in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And who were you? And I didn't even see the movie, so I didn't know who I was. <laughs> I wasn't even a good liar. Do you remember how that story came to you? I was in class, and like, it, why Raiders? I don't even know because I thought it was a cool movie. Uh, you know, Harrison Ford was this cool guy. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know his name then, right? But I, that was your line. Yeah, that I, I was, was in like, Raiders. Yeah, I was something. in Raiders, and then it was kosher. You know, my friends would bring non-kosher food to school, and my I can only have kosher food at home. So I said, "Well, if you give me a piece, I'll tell you it's kosher." So, <laughs> so, so you're like fake blessing their food. Oh, yeah, I was. Bless, yeah, I was fake blessing their food, and my friend always would give me his non-kosher food because he thought it was really funny. And I thought it was great because it tasted better than my shit. So that was like your first kind of walk on the wild side. That was my walk on the wild side. And then it actually started with food. And um, when I was eight years old, my parents left me with a newlywed couple. In, Where did they in go? Israel. Okay. Uh, they went back to the America. They took a year sabbatical and went back to America for six weeks. And I used to have fears of the night. So I used to sleep in my parents' closet, actually. And so my first night with this newlywed couple, I think they were in their early 20s. I knocked on their door late at night, and I was like, did my parents tell you about my little problem? And what did they say? <laughs> and they're like, what little problem? I said, well, I can't sleep alone. And I crawled into the middle of the bed. Wow. <laughs> so that was my first experience with an older woman. I'm sure they're qualifying <laughs> about that in some meaning right now. Right. They're, yeah, they're, they, they, uh, they're in, they're in tra- trauma anonymous. <laughs> right. From, from or that. sex and love. <laughs> sex and love anonymous. What happened to little Asher? Um, so, so that's interesting, though, because I can relate to both of those things. I grew up a liar and scared of the night. When I was a kid, I would go into my parents' room, and my, and my parents, an interesting thing, because my dad hates it when I blame him for my drug addiction, but I really like, it's a good shtick for me. I don't blame anybody for anything. Um, but when I was a little kid, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I would be terrified. It would be ter- just be terrified. 
And my parents would not come into my room. They wouldn't come, like, sit there. I, like, still fucking lie in the bed with my daughter if she's scared. And, Absolutely. You know, my parents would never go in there. So their solution was they bought a mattress, and they put it on the terrace. And if I woke up scared <laughs> in the middle of the night, they said, you could get the mattress and put it on the floor in our room. And that's what I did from when I was, like, six to when I was, like, ten. Every night I would wake up, and I would drag the mattress in there. And I was just terrified. You know, it's interesting, though, because I don't hear that story very often. Dad, you have a comment on this, by the way? I see you lurking out there. We're, we're talking about the fact Here. that you fucked up your son because you put a mattress on the terrace when it was negative 72 degrees. And, remember, he, and he was scared of the night. Dad, welcome back to the show. Do you remember <laughs> when I was a, a youth, a child, and I would wake up scared in the middle of the night? Do you remember this? Barely, barely, yes. Here, come, 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 come. Yeah, yeah. You, and do you remember that rather than coming and comforting me, you sent me to the terrace to get a mattress so I could sleep on the floor next to your bed? I remember you coming into the bed with me and mom, and that's where you stayed. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> you, I was slept on a mattress for years next to your bed. Next to the bed, indoors, not on a, a terrace. But outside. certainly not in the bed. Did I ever sleep in the bed with you? Well, yeah, probably. And that's why we kicked you out and put you on the mattress next to. Yeah, they have a small bed. It's true. <laughs> but uh, the best thing was that my dad always slept with an aluminum bat under the bed. So when I was scared, I would have my hand on the bat to, for comfort, just in case anybody came, he could beat them with the bat. <laughs> Where's the minus 72 degrees coming from? No, the minus 72 degrees came in from the fact that he said that the mattress was on the terrace. Well, he assumed I was sleeping on the terrace. He was not on the terrace. <laughs> All right, goodbye. Go do your thing. I thought you were going to ask me an important question. Well, no. we, we, will one no. day, we will one day ask you about the orthodox atheism. Oh, I'm, I'm brilliant. You want to bore, <laughs> you want to put the yeah. doping nation to sleep? Let's, let's go for it. Um, so... You work with a ton of addicts. Yes. So you're more familiar with these stories than I am. Do you hear a lot of that story, like a lot of people that are just scared in general, like in their childhood? Yeah, I do hear a lot of stories where people are scared in general from reasons that they don't even know and then scared in general because of... Trauma. Yeah, terrible shit that happened to them. In my life, I cannot trace my fear to a specific trauma i and then the other thing is that when i look at like i i I gave up trying to decipher why am i an addict like Mm -hmm. i gave up on that question um but i know one of the things was that i i just wanted not to care so much like that was the biggest attraction to finally not give a fuck like everybody's like i don't give a fuck i really gave a fuck about everything (laughs) you know what i mean yeah so so you're a liar and you're scared of the night and how did it turn into drugs so first it turned into food because i would go to the market to soothe because i i felt guilty or shameful not guilty, shameful about going into these people's bed. So I would eat ice creams in the middle of the night at eight years old. So you're eight. You get into the young couple's bed, and where does the ice cream come in? After school every day, I would walk. Because you'd feel guilty at the end of the day. You'd be like, I can't believe you're an eight-year-old worrying about sleeping in this. That's all very, like, that might be trauma. Yeah. Do you think it was traumatizing that your parents left you with this couple? 100%. Actually, my first trauma was I called my sister mom. Because my mom was Ima, right. which means mom in Hebrew. Sure. And all my friends had a mom, and I didn't have a mom. 
and I used to call her mom. She, and then how she, old was your sister? She was 16 when I was born. I'm the youngest by eight and a half years. How many brothers and sisters? I'm one of five. Okay, that could be traumatic in itself. Yeah, and I, and I have five. Wow. So The circle is completed. The circle is completed. I didn't have um, cable TV, so I decided to have kids. Wow. So do you have cable now or no? I do. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. It was either cable or snipping. So, snipping. <laughs> so we're talking about fucking uh, eight years old, self-medicating ice cream in the afternoon, and sleeping with strange people in bed to deal with your fear. Totally. And when did the transition happen from food, lying, and fear into alcohol and drugs? So it happened at about 13. I didn't want to be a husky size for my bar mitzvah. And my parents told me that if I lost the weight, they'd buy me a nice suit for my bar mitzvah. So it's, I a lot of, it's great to be 13 and you have to lose weight. You go on a weight. It's like you don't have enough fucking terrible shit at 13. Okay. Right. I'm with you. And I, I lost 36 and a half pounds in six weeks on the puffed rice and Diet Coke diet. So 13 years old, you're just eating puffed rice and Diet Coke. Skim milk, puffed rice, and Diet Coke. That was my... I was passing out during the day. Wow. Yeah. And I was five feet tall, so 36 and a half pounds at five feet is is a lot of weight. And you learned that magical thing of how to add something or take away something to change you. 100%. And that was the thing. I was anti-drugs, completely anti-drugs. And then I went to some Jewish retreat... And my boys were smoking weed out of uh, a, a Coke can. In, in L.A. or in Israel? In L.A. And I was 14. And I was like, you know what? Let me try this shit. And I'm not sure I got high, but I felt great. Because you were included? or Yeah. yeah. I was okay. cool. And then that was it. I was off to the races. I had a friend whose dad grew weed in the house. And I used to steal his weed. So I always had weed for everybody. So then I was totally cool. Uh, and then I had a girl who said, if you smoke, it hurts your lungs, so you, let's do acid, you know, because that's healthy. Sure. <laughs> well, the thing about acid, it's very small volume, <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the thing about acid. It's like not a lot. Right. So, so you started tripping at what point? A year later. So you're months. 15, are you in Jewish school? Yeah. Is everybody on drugs in Jewish no, school? No, actually, there were like four of us, maybe five of us, but we were considered the cool kids. That were smoking weed. I didn't. I wouldn't do hallucinogenics, um, LSD tabs, whatever you want to call them, in front of my friends because I thought I'd be judged. But this girl was really hot. So you and she went out. To, and she wasn't Jewish, and that was wow. If I can get in her pants. So you took acid with her. Yeah, I took acid to be with her. Did that work out? It did. All right, well, good deal. Yeah, it was a good deal. So it, it didn't work out so well at the Grateful Dead concert. What happened? Tell me the story. What year is it? <laughs> oh, 90, 1990, 89. And Jerry is probably not on heroin that year. Probably not. I think that's when he just got out of the coma around then. It was supposedly really... I saw The Grateful Dead in 91, and like I, I, that was the first dose I ever took, and I don't remember the dead being there. You know what I mean? Like well, I remember the... It was actually not the dead show. It was Rob Weir and Rob Wasserman, okay. two members of the dead sure. in a small club in Oxnard. And all I remember is I went with my friends, with two friends, and I took LSD or what? No, I think it was shrooms. And the roof started coming in on me, and I just had to take off. And I just disappeared. I have no idea how I got home. I don't know what happened. I got home. Everything was fine, but I was scared shitless. It was not a pleasant experience. No, it wasn't a pleasant experience, yet I still 
love getting high. So I just stuck with weed primarily and drinking. So you didn't, you weren't like a psychedelics guy. No, I, 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 that scared the shit out of me and I just stopped. I always found like, I always liked doing psychedelics, but I also felt like it was like a lot of work. Like, like at at the end I was just like, it's too much work for me to, to dose or, you know, but when I was taking psychedelics, it was like, it, it was very much like I was in bands and it was, it was exciting, but I had so much self-hatred that it would become like a lot of work, you know, and a lot of just fear and, but I like tripping. I, I, I would say I like tripping and my addict in me didn't come out. Like, you know, I, I could be like, nah, I tripped on Saturday. I'm not tripping on Wednesday. I also sold a ton of acid. So I had a ton of acid and everybody was always tripping around me and I would sell acid, but I didn't like tripping more than once a week. Like it just seemed like that too- was uh, more than once a week is too much for me. Like it's a good drug addict, right? Cause normal people don't say, Oh, I'll trip acid once a week and I'm not a drug addict. Well, I think, <laughs> no, but I think, I think, you know, what about this whole new micro dosing phenomenon? So I was actually going to say that I, I, I go to men's group. So, I mean, we'll get into recovery later, yet part of my journey in recovery is I have men that I trust, and we meet four times a year to talk about our real shit, and ayahuasca. Do you take ayahuasca No, I I haven't done any of it, yet I'm considering it. And I can't believe I'm saying it on this. I haven't done it because I'm not comfortable walking into any room of, of our fellowship, and saying it out loud. So unless I'm willing to do that, I'm not going to do it. My my wife was like, they have these places in Costa Rica, these resorts, where you go and you trip ayahuasca, and then you like lay in the hot tub and like go in a mud bath and shit. And she's like, she's like, it's too bad you're sober because we could go trip <laughs> ayahuasca and go to a resort, whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, lots of people consider it, you know, a spiritual quest. But the truth is, I mean, I'm not going to do it. Because I don't want to fuck up everything that I have. Like, it's just a, it's like, yeah, there's probably some sort of level of spirituality that I could reach from tripping ayahuasca or microdosing, but I, I don't, I think for me it's a wash. So, me, it was actually last April, I was in a, 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 a depression. Mm-hmm. I was in a dark space and okay. I was looking for a way out. Mm-hmm. And that's when I considered doing it. And it was interestingly enough, I brought it up three months ago, but I'm not in that place now. So You feel too good to be tripping ayahuasca. Yeah, I was like, why am I going to do it? And it's funny, you should tell your wife to go do it, because I'm pretty sure that she'd trip ayahuasca and start throwing up and shitting herself, and I'm pretty sure that she wouldn't consider it a great No, <laughs> I, don't, I think that she she's um, <laughs> curious about it. You know, I, I took ibogaine years ago, okay. and... Um, I didn't have the best experience on it, but it was funny. It's a funny story. Um, but fucking, I believe there are ways to, I think there is spirituality to be distilled out of the psychedelic experience. Like I do believe that I just know that it's not for me soon. Right. You know, I think I've had all my psychedelic spirituality. I like the idea of, of cause I haven't curated that much sober spirituality, you know, and sure. like, and I, and I don't really, I don't really go for it as much as I probably should or could. I kind of like keep it next to where I am rather than really pursuing sober spirituality. And I don't want to speak out of time with our thing. Um, because I know you're a rabbi. You studied to be a rabbi. Did you get clean before that, or were you using when you were in uh, rabbinical school? I was back and getting fat. 
So I was back. So what happened was, at the end of high school, there was a girl that said, you're a drug addict, even though I don't even know how a weed smoker is a drug addict, but I guess... I knew a lot of people yeah. <laughs> who were... When I was in treatment for heroin, there were... You know, it was sad to me, but there were kids there that were just stoners. Yeah. And you know it's not going to go well for a stoner who's in rehab with heroin addicts. No, not at all. So I was a stoner, and she's like, you're a drug addict. I was like, fuck you, no, I'm not. And I stopped it, and I followed her to Israel to go to yeshiva, which is seminary. And so every time I took something out, I replaced it with something else. So I went through a phase where my drug of choice was religion. Right, and then it was, and then I added food to it. How old were you at, at when you went to yeshiva? Uh, seventeen and a half, seventeen. And at that 18. point, had any of your consumption of alcohol or drugs been? Was it ever like far gone at that point? No, I had no. I, I didn't think I was an addict at all. I didn't even consider it at all. You were just like a heightened person, like obsessive, like obsessive, suicidal tendencies. Okay. Since a young age, I was like, I, I, I always fantasized about it, never planned it, but that later on in the story I did, but it was fantasies. So you go to Israel to study yeshiva, but that's not rabbinical school, is it? So, it, yeah, you can during that process, and I started the process, and then I came back and finished the process. What made you want to do it, though? So it was interesting. The rabbi who gave me, gave me the test and ordained me asked me that. I said, I've given my mom so much heartache her whole life, I thought I'd give her some pleasure. So you did it for your mother? I did it for my mother. How old were you when you decided to do it? 20. And were you thinking, this is what I'm going to do with my Absolutely life? Absolutely not. I told him I'll never use this in my life. So, but you had enough foresight to know that you could be a rabbi and a real estate developer and a rehab owner and a cokehead. You could do all of those things. Well, I wasn't yet about a cokehead, but yeah. <laughs> what I mean is yeah, like, totally. but when I was a kid, I never thought if I was going to be a talk show host, I wasn't going to develop properties also. I didn't, I was never like, it was never in my head that I could do more than one thing. Oh yeah. It was never in my head that I can only do one thing. So you were like. I'm going to study. What did you, what was rabbinical school like? Boring as hell. Okay. We studied esoteric laws of, I don't know, uh, how do you slaughter animals and if it's kosher <laughs> or not. Okay. You know. And, Amazing. Yeah. And the, and the laws of the Sabbath, which, you know, it, it gets very detailed and minutia. And I'm not a detailed guy. No, me neither. So he tested me. I passed the test. I did cheat. And. He asked me, and I said, hey, doing it for my mom, I'm never going to use this in my life. If you cheat, what did you cheat on in school in general? It, everything. Because, But if you're cheating <laughs> in rabbinical school, because that says I believe in God, that says I'm a spiritual, religious person, doesn't God not like that? Like, how do you make peace with that? You know, I, I always made peace with everything through substances. Okay, so right? in that situation, because I was a, I, I, I've been a Jekyll and Hyde throughout my entire history. I was never a bad guy. I was a good guy that did bad things. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I mean, to you, to you, it did. It was your rationalization. It was my rationalization. So, and I, and I didn't feel good about the bad shit. So I needed to feed it somehow. I didn't really care. I didn't consider. Cheating in rabbinical school, bad right. because I didn't even really want it. Right. Well, I mean, it's like I've never had a great comprehension of God as a K 
capital G slash D. I, I, I've more just when I, I've only recently really come to embrace God as everything, you know, never as a, a like a creative, whatever that expression is, a, a, an actual being like it was never an entity. God was never an entity to me. Uh, when you were in rabbinical school, was God an entity? Yes. And, God, did, and But you just didn't think God would care if you cheated. God to me now is the father I always wanted. Okay. Right? So... Is your dad still alive? No, he passed away. I'm sorry. So, so the father I've always wanted was a guy that I'm always there. He loves me unconditionally. He doesn't support me unconditionally, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, he tells me when I fuck up, but he doesn't let me think he doesn't love me because I fucked up. That's God to me. God to me then was a scorecard, right? It was, if I do good, I get brownie points, and if I do bad, he's going to beat my ass. It's like Catholic God kind yeah, of thing. I, yeah, I guess. I don't even know. It was, it was it, it, you know, I had to have the constant scale. So, you, But I'm saying you weren't worried that you'd get the ass beating for cheating in rabbinical school. I probably did, but I still wanted to get the credit. What you thought of me was way more important than what I thought of me. Right. Right? So the fact that I got the degree was way more important than how, than you how got shitty it. I felt right. about getting it. Right. Okay, so you're a rabbi. If I was rich, right? How I got rich made no difference. It's just that I was rich. Was that a big ambition of yours at that point? 100%. Was that like the biggest ambition? Yes. And you were like, fuck it. You must have been very advanced, though, because you're like, fuck it. I'm going to be really rich, and I'll, get a, I'll be a rabbi, too. Why not? Why not? And, exactly. and how old are you when, you when you get the, is it ordained? Yeah. So how old were you at that point? 21. So you're, did, you, did you go to college also? I did. I didn't finish. So you go to college. So what made you go? I'm just curious. What made you go from college to rabbinical school? Was it seriously just to please your mother? Or was there a thought? You don't remember. I, 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 I can make it up. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think the bottom line is I was always uncomfortable wherever I was at. And I always needed to be on to the next thing. I remember 16 years old. We snuck into the Seventh Vale, which was the best strip club in L.A. at the time. And I got in there, and it's what paradise for a 16-year-old, and I wanted out the second I got in there. Like wherever, wherever I was at, I needed the next thing. Right. I could never be, stay present for longer than 10 seconds to enjoy, unless I was high. And when did you get... So you didn't make a conscious decision to stop using drugs. You just kind of drifted away from it. When did you get really into it? So actually, I didn't use cocaine as a kid, all my friends were using it. My non-Jewish friends were using it. There was a TV show called Fame. Sure. And, and Leroy from Fame snorted. <laughs> yeah, I was really into I, it. I just my want, sister went to LaGuardia. So I, I was just like, want you to know that you just showed your age. Because well, I, I, I asked somebody today about the TV show Fame, and they started laughing, saying, what is that? <laughs> Dude, I, I remember very clearly getting sick in school and lying in the bed watching Fame, you know, eating plates I want to live forever. I, I, and I like the TV show more than the movie. Personally. I never saw the movie. Yeah, the movie wasn't as good as the TV so, show. So Leroy snorted cocaine on the show and got a bloody nose, and I made up he died. And it was probably, scary. Probably, it scared you. Yeah, probably saved my life. So fast forward, I lose a lot of weight. I need to replace it with something, and I start drinking heavily. And I become a scotch connoisseur while I finish the bottle of scotch. And then scotch is too many calories. I switched to, to vodka. 
I'm, a, I'm on a two-day bender, and some girl says to me, try cocaine, it'll help you. And I was like, sure. It'll help you do what? <laughs> it'll help you drink more, it'll help you feel better. I didn't even know, it was just, it'll help you. Uh-huh. And I remember literally going into the bathroom of my hotel room. I don't know why I went into the bathroom, but I went into the bathroom of my hotel room, and I put it on the sink, and I snorted a line, and Clark Kent went into the phone booth, and Superman came out. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, and I was so pissed off. That you hadn't done that it I hadn't done it 20 years earlier, right? Right. And it would have taken care of the weight, everything. Everything, right. man. Right. That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, and I... I figured out early how to come down off Coke, right? You take Coke enough, and then you take a Zanny and go to sleep. So it was perfect. You have that magic moment. Because I had that magic moment with weed, with pills, with heroin. You had that magic moment with Coke and alcohol and, like... Just Coke. Just the Coke. I mean, the Coke and... I never did... I did Coke by itself twice. So Coke really enabled me to drink more. And that combination, I really thought I was invincible. Did Coke become like a habit? Like, did it become Coke an everyday became, thing? Not an everyday thing, but an ev- for sure an every weekend thing. I'm uh, I'm the guy that wants too many, a million is not enough, but I can say no. Right. Or not say no, I can wait. Right. Well, you, you it's, you know, an addict is an addict, and obviously, oh, for sure. and obviously you knew you had to be done with it. What I was, didn't know I had to be done with it. I went from being really rich to really, I don't want to call it poor, but poor. Yeah, never mind. I went from being really wealthy to literally not being able to pay the DWP bill. How did that happen? A series of events that, if you look back at it, don't make any sense. I can't blame it on drugs. You know, city of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania filed bankruptcy, and they, I was there, they were my largest tenant. Like, you know, I, you can't make that shit It was up. a series of unfortunate events. A series of unfortunate events that I'm sure I could have prevented had I been smarter, but I can't blame it on drugs. But it was, but it was that series of unfortunate events that made you reassess your life. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's... That was the greatest gift that ever happened to me, ultimately. And it wasn't the drug's fault, which is just really interesting, because normally in a situation like this, you have a total fucking drug addict fuck everything up, and they're like, the only way I'm going to fix my life is by getting off of drugs. You were using Coke on the weekends, and your business fell apart, and you were like, I better fucking get this shit so together. It didn't, I wish it was that easy. I actually wanted to be out of here, and I bought life insurance with intent to kill myself in the summer of 07, knowing that my You had statement, kids at that point? Yeah, three and a half. So you ha- what were you going to do? So, First of all, I'm sorry. That's terrible. It's funny. It's not funny. That's yeah, te- no, it's funny. Well, I mean, come on. It's funny because I was w- willing to wait two years to kill myself because life insurance wouldn't pay. Ex- explain that to me. Yeah, so there's something called the contestability period in life insurance. Because if you get life insurance and then you die, they're going to assume that you did it to get your family some money. Exactly. So, so they're not going to pay the first two years. They're just going to refund you the premium. So what was your plan? My, I, my plan was to go skiing, take a bunch of benzos, and just you know somehow not make it off the mountain. No, I'm sure it wouldn't so be hard. Because I, I didn't want anybody to know I killed myself. Right? I didn't want the shame around it. I just wanted out of here. And that was the plan, though. Yeah. When you bought the life insurance, that was the plan. It was the plan. So I w- actually, because I had to wait two years, I went to therapy. And unbeknownst to me, my therapist had 20-some-odd years sober. What was your benzo consumption like? Benzo, Percocet, Vicodin. I had gout, 
so whenever I'd gout, I probably would take 15 Vicodin, 20 Vicodin. Uh, Percocet was one or two to, and, a, and a shot or two of tequila. Really, it speeds it up. It's really just a good job. Uh, you know, um, benzos were to come down off Coke. But it wasn't like you weren't like fucking eating pills every day. It no, wasn't, that wasn't when I go deal. on an airplane, when, if it was around... If I was hanging out with you and you go, I got a benzo, I was like, hit me, hit me with But one. you wouldn't wake up in the morning and be like, I need this this today. No. Right. Um, but you were miserable. And where do you trace the misery to? The misery really started all the way at eight years old, to be honest. It was, and it never left. It never left. I was, I felt that I didn't belong. I felt that if you really knew me, you'd run. Right. I was a piece of shit. I didn't do, in my mind, I was just a piece of shit. And, and I was not a good person and I was not worthy. You did the things that you thought a piece of shit does because you were so uncomfortable. Correct. Okay. And then, and then you, how many kids did you have in 2007? I had, I had, I had three kids. You had three kids and you were miserable and you were like, everybody's better off if I'm not here and they get the money from this thing. Bottom line is the only reason I'm here is to pay their bills because I have nothing else of value to give them. That's now so I can't sad. Pay, now I can't pay their bills. Yeah, it was sad. And you couldn't pay their bills, so you bought the policy. Correct. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you go to therapy, and the therapist is in recovery. And I say to the therapist, I'm a true narcissist. I've not done anything good in my life without balancing out the bad. And he looks at me, and he says, your hardware's fine. Your software is severely fucked up. You want to do something about it? And I said, yeah, you have 19 months. <laughs> because that's when I'm. That's when I have, <laughs> so I'm I have clearance. I have clearance. I'm to, out to get the family paid. I'm out. Right. And um, and uh, he he basically said you have a coke problem, and I just stopped. I said no, I don't. I just stopped. And he goes, you have a drinking problem, and I said, yeah, I do. And but I'm not stopping that. I I, I need something to knock off the, sure. the edge, the pain to to just survive. You know. And um, he sent me to a 12-step meeting. I came back and I said, you know, you're a real asshole. Not only have you, have I lost my money and my dignity, you're going to compare me to a junkie on the street? You know, that's... Did I, he send you to Narcotics Anonymous? Or no, did? he sent me to an AA meeting. Okay, but it was, but full, I, of, it was full of junkies. No, he didn't tell me which one. So right. I went to a late-night meeting because I figured if I go late-night, nobody's going to know who I am. Right. Like, I'm some celebrity that when I walk into an AA... I'm like, holy oh, shit. Oh, my God. Rabbi Asher's Rabbi here. Rabbi Asher's yeah, here. Right? <laughs> Bottom line is, I'd say at 99.5% of the AA meetings I've been to, nobody knows who I am. Yeah. I went into an AA meeting this morning, fucking packed room on 11th Street, and in my head, I'm like, I have this podcast. These are my people. <laughs> and, like, you know... Nobody fucking knows anything, you know. It's just, it's like that's such a fucked up feeling because you, because then you catch yourself thinking like they know me, they don't know me, and why should I mean? It's like such a weird, weird thing, you know. It's funny though because even before I had the podcast, I would walk in like I was somebody, right. and I was certainly not. Well, you know, I always tell somebody, you know, being famous in AA is no is no feather on your cap. You well, know? it's fucking funny though, but you know, I I always love those 
those people. And I'm always so jealous of those people who walk into the AA room and they're like, they're like posing and put like their Isaac on the love boat and pointing their fingers at everybody. I'm like, man, I should come to this meeting more often. You know what I mean? So I could really be part of the cool kids in AA, you know, but that's, I bet you that fucking fucks with a lot of people. Oh, for sure it does. You know, you know, listen, if you want to get scientific for one second, we are socially uncomfortable people. And now you're telling us to be social. Right? Addicts in general are isolators, right? So it's a disease of isolation or whatever. I, I don't want, I, I'm calling it a disease. I'm not making a statement of it as a disease or not, but it's a disease of isolation. And now you're telling people go to a meeting and get a sponsor, right? <laughs> get friendly. That's insane. So, yeah, for sure. It screws a lot of people, especially when they see the guy, as you were suggesting, you know, the, it was like, I'm never going to be that. I wasn't that in school, right? I wasn't that in temple or whatever i'm never gonna be that so i'm fucked i love the idea of being it and i'm i'm incredibly social naturally Mm -hmm. i just am but i'm really good one-on-one or i'm really good with my close friends once there's a lot of people i get very self-conscious of of weird social dynamics me too um like I get, and I get bugged out. Like I love being social. Like I and I, I loved isolating, but I love I love talking to people more. But like it's like I my head does overtime work on what, what I have to talk to the next person. I have to finish with you and get to them. And like like it matters. It doesn't matter except that I go nuts. Um, <laughs> you know. So you you go back to the therapist and you're just like I, you're I, like I, you fucking dick. I, you know who do you think I am? I'm not that fuck. I'm not that fuck. The guy was shooting dope. But meanwhile, you want to kill yourself. Meanwhile, exactly. Yeah. So that's the the irony of the whole thing, right? right. I am as fucked, but right. I don't see myself as fucked. And yet, then I say to him, "Hold on a second. Six hundred thirteen commandments versus twelve steps. I'll take twelve steps any day." When did it become appealing, though? Imme- the twelve step idea became appealing immediately because you were a guy. You you were a Bible guy. Yeah, I, I like I like this idea of oh. I wanted everything to be immediate gratification, right? But so, shit on the wall, it's like the Torah kind of thing, yeah. the scrolls. Yeah, it's like, it, it, yeah, it's it, funny because a lot of people say to me, it's so Christian. I was like, it's so Jewish. Well, Christianity is pretty fucking Jewish at its core. Right, it's Jewish without Jesus. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well Christianity is Jewish with Jesus. Uh, yeah, whatever. I got you. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with whatever. You. And so well, went, people say it's so Christian because they don't know anything about Judaism. Yes, and, and there's a lot they're of looking good. for a way out. Right. And so at what point did all of the recovery stuff become something that you like doing? March 18th, 2008. Well, what happened? I was drunk again, miserable, on the floor, wanting to die. And I couldn't, and I had that moment. I I went back, it was 9 o'clock at night. I don't know if it was that day or the next day. I went back to that same meeting. And some guy walked over to me at the meeting. He goes, let me take you to a meeting where you can meet a sponsor that you'll relate to more. And I um, made a sponsor the next morning. But what made that meeting more appropriate? The morning meeting was more appropriate just because there were some working people there and there were people that I could identify with. They weren't, most of them weren't living downtown and shooting dope. (laughs) <laughs> there, were, there were drinkers. There were coker, cokers. Right. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So, yet it's interesting. I continued to go to that 10 p.m. late night meeting for the first year every day. Well, those are those that became your people. Yeah, I loved those people. 
I really love those people. I wanted to save every single one of those people too. That, was that your, when you got there, you're like, these guys are fucked. I will save them all. Yeah. I, 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 I've had major Godfather savior complex forever. Oh yeah. Cause and if I do for you, you owe me. That was the thinking or, oh, yeah. or you'll like me if I save you'll you. like me and you'll owe me or you'll never leave me too. Right. As it, long it, as you need me, right. you won't leave me. And so, but you you turned your life into a career of, of helping people. So I actually picked up a book called The Holy Thief, written by Rabbi Mark Borowitz, and I sent him an email that I wanted to meet him. And he said, why you want to meet? And I said, because my experience has been that all rabbis are full of shit. Are you full of shit, too? And he goes, why don't we study together? He's like, I want to meet you now. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And we started studying together at this place called Beit Teshuvah in L.A., and it was the most spiritual Aside from Alcoholics Anonymous, the most spiritual place I've ever been. And the reason I say Alcoholics, the most spiritual place, is where else are you going to go in the world where people of every different walk of life are there for one reason, just to get better? And right? then it becomes like they're there to, to help the next guy. Yeah, it's, it's like, like the like most there's spiritual no, there's thing. No, there's nothing to me more spiritual, because to me, spirituality is service. But the, also just the idea of a diverse bunch of people it makes it it's just so beautiful right it's yeah. like yeah i yeah, agree yeah and it was the first time in my life that nobody knew who my father was you know nobody cared who i was i they, they didn't ask me what my net worth was how much money i made it didn't make a fucking difference and it was so i don't know it's just still i can't i can't get over the fact that there are people like that in the world and a lot of us so what did you do so we started studying, and I said, Rabbi, I don't want to go back into deal-making. I'll binge on that, too. So what am I going to do with my life? And he goes, you're going to open up Sober Livings. And I said, Rabbi, I'm eight months sober. I got no experience. Who's that was his plan? Yeah. Who's- Why was that his plan? I have no idea. So I said, I have eight months sober. I got no experience. Who's going to send me clients? He goes, you were born to do this. Go get a fucking house, and I fucking will send you clients. And that was the beginning? That was the beginning, and the spoons went missing in the first couple weeks. That's going to happen. Yeah. And I was like... <laughs> That's the cost of doing business. And, right. And I closed the door and I was like, what? What? Guys, forks, knives, bowls, everything's cool. Why are you... What? What's... What's the spoons? And they all start laughing at me. And I was like... Well, well, nobody's leaving here until I find out. And then they explained to me that that's how you cook drugs. Yeah. That's how naive I was to that whole process. Let me ask you this. When did the self-awareness kick in on the Godfather complex? And and has it, and if it has, what did you change? Because you're still in the help, helping people business. So it, it kicked in, it started to kick in about a year and a half and two years in when I said to, I turned to somebody who works with me, I said, look at all the lives we save. And he looked at me and he goes, what the fuck did you just say? And I was like, what are you talking about? Well, who did you say it to? Somebody who worked for me, his name was Christian. And he said, are you crazy? We just, we're here, lucky to just support somebody through their own journey. So Christian had balls to say that to the boss. He did. Yeah. And at first I was like, screw you, you know? You were like, Christian, you should go find another job. Yeah, what, who, you know, and the defense mechanism came up. And then... I said, you know what? You're right. And I'm just a regular guy. Stop. You're, you know, and I continued in therapy and the Godfather complex, first, let's say as follows. It's not gone, right? It's, it's, it's quiet. 
gets quieter. And it's, I realize that if I give to you for fun and for free, without an expectation of return, I actually feel good. When I give you with an expectation of return, it hurts. I feel shitty every single time. So, I think I think it's 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 fascinating the that thing in in twelve step because we it's it's so fucking weird and and the whole it's a selfish program but you only keep what you have by giving it away <laughs> but also when you give it away you're you get you know mm-hmm. and and I and I operate very selfishly and like I call people because I'm bored and I call people because. I need distraction, like, and I'm using them to help them, you know, and I, right. I don't even know, like, I honestly, like, with Dopey, you know, people feel some kind of thing, but I never feel like I'm actually doing anything except feeding my ego, you know, the whole thing, like, I like having a show, I like uh, that people like the show, I don't really feel like I help anybody, and when I hear it, when I hear it, it makes me uncomfortable, to be honest with you. You know, I think it's very, I think I do, I do this stuff where it's like calling an addict because I'm told to, and I want to feel like I'm checking the box because I get scared that I'm going to fuck everything up. Right. Um, you just started a podcast called Showing Up with Asher. Uh-huh. Is it Showing Up with Asher Goddessman or just Showing Up with Asher? I think it's Showing Up with Asher G. Asher G. Um, and what was the, why'd you do it? What was the point? We have this notion that recovery is only for drug addicts. And I want to change that conversation. Stop pointing out that recovery is for everybody. Right. Everybody goes through something and everybody wants to get to the other side. We all can get better. And the good news for recovering people, drug addicts, is you have to change your life, right? Well, you don't have to. Well, to to be in recovery, you have to. Right, right, right. The bad news is you have to change your life, right? The good news is you get to change your life. The bad news is you have to change your life, so to say. Yet everybody at some point in time in their life takes an inventory, so why not let's move this process forward where we work together, we take an inventory of our lives, and we actually put meaning into it. So that's and everybody has that story, and it's fun to hear these stories. Yeah, these transformational. Me, I love it, and I and and to me, it answers questions for me. It's not, I don't have the answers, you know. And when am I spending too much time helping other alcoholics and ignoring my family? When am I? spiritually unfit because I'm meditating too much because I blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not, uh, you know, I don't know. Let's, you know, and I hear from so many diverse different people about moments in their lives that are so cool. I think it's great. I do. I think it's great just that to be in touch with people. Like one of my favorite things about doing dopey is just being in touch with people and, and meeting them. And if it's the listeners or the people who I get to meet in person like you, it's like, it's just cool. Or like just, we were talking before, like I never met a bunch of people that I talk to all the time and one day I'll meet them and it's like, I've met them, but I haven't. And it's like, it it makes the world a little bit closer. And and I like to know people. I, I crave action, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, you know, I craved action even when I was using drugs. I just didn't get any action. (laughs) I just got high. But now I like crave any kind of interaction. And I think, you know, 
doing a podcast is just adding a component and it's and it's touching more people and it seems like that's your passion as well. My passion is really to be connected. I want to bring to the world two things, connection and safety. That's it. Do you think that there's any terrible terrible drug story that you'd like to tell the audience? Terrible terrible drug story. I think the Ralph Oxycontin story isn't yours, but I, I love that story. <laughs> but if you can, if there's a dopey story that you had in mind, tell uh, it I, now. I will tell a, a funny story. Okay. How does that sound? And probably what I probably did put my life in danger. So there's a guy named Suge Knight. Suge Knight was a crip, which is a big. He was actually in the car. Is he still alive? Or is he he's dead? in law. He's alive in jail. Okay. Oh, I got another story after that. A recovery, funny story, and a drug addict story. So, Suge was in the car when Tupac was shot. Okay, he was the head of Death Row Records. I'm familiar with Suge Knight. Oh, okay, cool. He's in jail the rest, for the rest of his life for running somebody over on like a Kendrick Lamar video or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, He's in a. Cl- I'm in a. Cl- I'm coked off my head. I'm in a club in Hollywood, and he walks in with his bossy. And I was like, oh, dude, that's Suge Knight. I literally went over to him. I put my hands on his forehead and said the priestly blessing in Hebrew and kissed his forehead. What did he say? At, did, he so say his pos- did he say, nah, homie? So, so, no, it was funnier than that. It was awesome. And he, so his, homie, his homies, his boys are looking at me like, we got to take this guy out. Uh-huh. And he looks at me and he goes, you my rabbi. <laughs> Did he know you? No, never. you just—I had no clue. But he enjoyed the he enjoyed rabbinical the intimacy. intimacy. Yeah, so that's awesome. So that's that—that's a Suge Knight story. Um, Did you ever see him again? Oh yeah, we used to hang out. Is that true? Yeah, I swear. We used to go meet for drinks, and I mean, probably see addict in me probably five times. Okay, but you were hanging out with Shug Knight. How was he? Was he cool? Was he nice to me, guy? he was totally cool. All right. You know, I, again, I didn't see Didn't the he dark hang side. Vanilla Ice over the balcony? Yes, by he his did. Angles? That's how he got him to sign. Right. Yeah. yeah. God bless Shug Knight. Yeah, God bless Shug you write him. You ever reach out to him in jail? No. You should write him a letter. Be like, dear homie, it's your rabbi. If I can help you out, you know, send him, send him a, uh, a Bible, something. <laughs> you should do it. I should go visit him. Why not? Yeah. He might like that. I'll take the direction. That's uh, it's a mitzvah. You give a little, you know. It's a mitzvah. It's nice. A mitzvah to visit Shug Knight. Yeah, <laughs> do it. So what's the? So who's the rabbi now? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so and then the funnier, uh, I mean, a crazy story of of drug addiction. Dude, would you ever consider visiting Shug Knight in jail? One hundred percent. Dude, you should do it. I, I will. If I was in LA, I would beg you to take me. Well, let's. I, I don't know when I'll be in LA, and I want Chug Knight to get some visitors <laughs> soon. I worry about him a lot. You don't know how lonely it is in the in the can. He's a villain to the world, but I, he might just be a good guy who's done some bad things. Yeah, like I, the listen, rest of us. I, I, again, I, yeah. Who and who am I to judge him? They really paint a terrible picture of him in the NWA movie, though. <laughs> they really it's a great movie, though. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I wonder what kind of person he really is. I would see that interests me. It, go to fucking prison and visit Chug Knight. Okay, done. Please, I promise. It will be fulfilling to you. I promise. All right, we'll try. Deal. Don't make a promise. Why? Well, I promise I'll try. Yeah. I can't promise I'll get in. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm I sure. promise I will make my effort. I think it'll be cool. It'll be a great story. <laughs> it will. Right. Yeah. We'll come back onto Dopey and share about it. I want to hear it. Totally. It, maybe they'll let us record with Chug Knight. <laughs> Dude, that could be a thing. Maybe he found God in jail. Well, I mean, lots of people have. 
So what's your funny recovery story? Scary funny story to me was I had a guy that was a cage fighter, just got out of jail, and I knew he was using drugs. And again, I had savior mentality, and I just couldn't prove it. So I woke him up in the middle of the night to test him because I, I he had fake peace, something. I don't know what happened. And he literally looked like he was going to eat me. So what happened? So I said to him, well, you can kill me, but you're not going to kill everybody in the house. Or you can get honest with me. Did he get honest? Did he test? He, he started crying, like, and he's like, dude, I've been using da-da-da. It was surrender. And I, it was that it's fun, And now the funny part of the story is, so I get him into treatment feeling I'm doing a good thing. He literally sold drugs to the entire treatment center. <laughs> What, what's happened to this guy now? He, Is it Jean-Claude Van Damme? Yeah, he's dead. Oh, man. Yeah. And how did Ralph die? Ralph had two years sober and then got complacent and then started using again. And then he went to treatment. He went to detox, actually. And he said, Asher, can I come back to your place? And I was like, not unless you go to treatment. I, I, you know, it's getting too much. At it, it's too much. And his first night in sober living, he didn't wake up. That's terrible. Yeah, I, and um, I miss him. I, I flew his body back. Funny was, his funeral, you would think that he was the rabbi of um, his town. And that's that's another unfortunate thing, right? That's another reason for showing up is drug addicts are not bad people. You don't have to deny that they died of drug use. You don't have to deny right. it's that not they're a shame. drug addicts. Right. Okay, so they fucked, you know, so they use drugs. They're not bad guys. Did your parents ever have a reaction to your drugs? Like, yeah, my nice Jewish boy, how could this happen? Yeah, this was their reaction. At 14 years old, we're at the Shabbos table, which Saturday you have lunch. And they were talking about the marijuana problem in the Jewish day schools. And they called me Ashi at the time. And they said, hey, Ashi, do you ever use drugs? I said, yeah, I actually smoked weed in my room right now. And everyone went dead silent. And maybe 30 seconds later, my mom goes, ha, 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 and it was never discussed again. It would have been, after you got sober, it wasn't discussed? You weren't really, you didn't really use drugs. I know you drank too much. Really? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, yes, there's a lot of shame and secrecy around it, and um, not for me. And what about deaths on your hands in this business? There must be countless, countless deaths. So many. And how do you how do you move through it? I sometimes get numb to it. Yeah. Some hit me harder than sure. others. Sure. And who am I to say they're not in a better place? Right, exactly. You know, somebody comes to me suicidal, I don't say to them, Don't kill yourself. What do you say? Tell me more about it. Right. Well, it's like let's talk about it. I, I, you, know. you can't say to a person who's I mean, it's like you're a, an alcoholic, you're a drug addict, and you go to a meeting and you tell the person, "Well, go out and try." Some, if you don't know you're an alcoholic, go try some controlled drinking. Or try. <laughs> you don't say that to a suicidal person, but maybe you do because probably most suicidal people are just hurting and they don't really want to die. <laughs> there was a, a, a story I heard about the guy that said the suicidal guy goes, "Wait, wait, wait! Let me bring my gun over." So. You could do it a little easier or something like that. No, that's not what... The A brings his gun. I got you. That's not my story. When somebody comes to me who is suicidal, I I believe they just want to be heard. Right? By and large. They want the same connection that you want. Yeah, and they don't feel they can have any connections. They want to be out of this world. Right. That's all. Asher, it's a joy to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me on. And it's so cool. I mean... 
that you get to help so many people all over the place. That I get to be there while they help themselves. Well, that you offer help. We'll yeah. call it that. Let's. I'm not, I'm not. I don't think you're a savior. I think you help people. That's good. It's not. It's not. It's not, it's not crazy. <laughs> you can help people and not save them. I can, and I want to remember and remind myself because I get ahead of myself. Right I hear you. I, I got you, and I appreciate that. And thank, thank you. you. It's good to have you. Take care. Right on. All right. So that was Rabbi Asher, and this episode has been willy nilly all over the place, but the best is yet to come because my favorite dopey guest who hasn't been on the show. This year has decided to do me a rare favor and step in to the end of the show. Welcome back, Linda. Thank you. The love of my life. The Mm. beauty of all beauties. How are you? (laughs) I'm tired. But well, I'm glad I'm glad to be back on the show. You're glad you missed being on the show. I love being on the show. You gotta sit closer to the mic. You love being on the show. Of course. Well the thing is that in just our, not when it's almost midnight. The night of the show is gonna come out. And you're it's coming like, out in five seconds. And you and you and you come downstairs and say, Time to be on the show. Well, that's why I'm that's surprised you're doing it. Why are you doing it? Because I love to be on the show. But <laughs> I'd I'd prefer a little a little notice next time. Notice never works because I'm never. I'm always running from one thing to the next, and and you have baby, right? Nora, it's better this way because then, then I don't get nervous. Like I'm not nervous right now, and I'm usually very nervous. And there's no agenda. And so far this episode, just to recap for you, because you don't know what the hell's going on, we had Brad on the show okay. who who said um, who basically said I stole Dopey from him. Oh, okay. Which I kind of did, and um, he's still talking about that. He can't stop. I feel like that's been going on. Like I know. He said he told me it was like years and years ago. I was on the. Did he tr- talk about it on this episode too? Yeah, that's <laughs> he wanted. He wanted to tell the dopey nation. He wanted to tell the dopey nation, and uh, and then we had and we also went down memory lane because Brad was my close friend, right? Um, who suffered? You know, he was my partner at work, and he mm-hmm. suffered because uh, I was a drug addict. Right. So he, we told some stories, and then we had Asher who's a rabbi who okay. runs some sober livings and he helps people get better. And he talked about childhood trauma and stuff. Mm. You would have liked that. Yeah, no, I, like, I, do. I would like that. That's the quick recap. That sounds like a good show. And here we are at the very end, at the, the sweet, sweet ending with my sweet, sweet Linda. Okay, well, what are, we, what are we doing? Why don't you tell the Dopey Nation what we've been doing? This crazy... Uh. Me and Linda decided to do this crazy fucking thing and we flew to Las Vegas and we got married. No. <laughs> no. We did this crazy... It's almost as crazy. I don't know what happened, but it's, you know, it came from Brad. Brad had last year made a New Year's resolution to stop eating carbs and sugar. Did and he know what that was, like what that diet was? He didn't go full keto. Okay. He just stopped eating carbs and sugar. He eats fruit, he eats meat, he eats vegetables, whatever. Okay. He doesn't go full keto. Something happened to me last Saturday. Wow, but- you're like so snazzy with the lingo, full keto. Why? I, I mean, don't know. You just that's fucking Linda's funny. so full of shit. You you she joined he the. He didn't go full keto. She joined the friends. Did you of, go full keto? Until tonight, I did. That until, was a keto. Those those were keto brownies. You will eat something that says keto <laughs> and say it's keto because I it made says them from scratch. What, I know every ingredient in them. Linda and I decided to go on this keto diet, and I never thought that I would. I've never been on a diet, right? And I never thought I'm almost like ashamed to be on a diet. Like, I'm ashamed Why? of it because, I don't know, it's like there's something very, like, first of all, very, like, womanly about going on a diet to me. 
Like it's not a masculine thing. I, okay. I prefer like the idea of not caring. Like that's Just, always like, eating like shit is a very ma- masculine thing. In my mind, for okay. some reason, it is. <laughs> you know, and the idea of taking care of myself isn't masculine. Right. And the idea of going on a, a crazy no carb, no sugar diet just doesn't seem masculine to me. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I, well, so the the Facebook group you were gonna make fun of me about the uh, the friends keto, of keto. No, it's keto for beginners. Isn't it called friends of keto? Yeah. It's called keto for beginners. And then I'm also on a keto for beginners women only because there's a lot of like people trying Snooping. to cook up and stuff. And a lot of and you're posting all the time. Well, hey I'm, guys, what kind of cheese <laughs> should I be eating? <laughs> no, I wrote let's talk cheese. I can't believe what you do on that thing. I, I, I need the support. <laughs> this diet's really hard. You, 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 okay. If anybody's done keto, it's it sounds very doable, but as time goes on, it um, it it gets much harder. I just even I uh, I think I posted about this too on on the group on Friends of Keto on on day four. I w- went to the supermarket. And it was really... So, guys, I'm really overwhelmed in no, the I supermarket. Said, Does anybody else get really anxious in the supermarket? And you knew the message. You, Linda is so good at the stupid social media because she knows when she says one thing, everybody's going to respond to it. Like, that's your... Well, because like, I'm good at tugging at the human... The heartstrings. The heartstrings and, like, you know... You're in touch with the with the Joe America's response to something. Like, I, you... I, I don't know. I, just, I liked... I liked to... I like to put feelers out there and see what happens. And a lot of people understood what I was saying. They said, one woman goes, I don't go to the supermarket. I, I uh, do uh, have the food delivered to her house because she can't handle like going to a supermarket while doing keto because it's so, it's over, very overwhelming. Because you don't, you think, and so here's the craziest part about this diet is when you hear carbs and sugar, right? Sugar is sugar, whatever, we know that. But carbs, I'm thinking, all right, it shouldn't be so hard to not eat like bread bread and pasta and all that shit. But now all of a sudden we have to like figure out how many carbs are in the vegetable that we want to eat. And we have to figure out the number of carbs in the – there's like fruit you can't eat now. And then like – You can't eat any fruit really. You can eat like a little bit of like – Raspberries. Raspberries. I don't even like raspberries. And like you have to stop drinking milk, but you can have heavy whipping cream because that doesn't have carbs. But it you have it's just it's it's a lot of work. The truth to is to do it to do it right. For me, I've never done anything like this. It's like kicking it doesn't feel like kicking drugs, but it's like it's a new way of life. Like but remember for me. everybody about Dave's major I mean, I've always when I've come on, always talked about Dave's sugar addiction. And so I'm pretty impressed that he just stopped eating sugar. And um, one of the things he said to me, because I, I did a, 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 it's called a candidia diet. I did it like a couple of years ago where I was just cutting out sugar. And I was eating a lot of sugar. I was eating really bad. And I remember feeling a little bit of withdrawal coming coming off the sugar. I don't eat that much sugar anymore, so I didn't feel too many of the effects now. But I was worried about the effects he was going to have. Because I eat so much sugar. he eats sugar. so much sugar. And not even so much the carbs, but mainly just, you know, cho- just sweets, just chocolate and just... And so I <laughs> was talking to him about it on, like, day three. I think we're at day six right now. Yeah. On day three. And he said, um, he said, you know, I think because I've with- withdrew, is that right? Off, withdrawn. Withdrawn off um, so many... 
hard drugs, that this is really not that big of a deal. And I think that that's a really cool thing, you know, and that's kind of a way to sort of make it a pot term, show, show if you can recover from heroin or pills or, or cigarettes know, or, or, or recover, whatever, but you know, that you can then kind of do a diet of this magnitude and it might not be so hard for you because of what you were able to endure in your past. I was mentioning that to Sam and Sam said, there's so many people that still struggle. Um, who got to kick X, Y, and Z. Anyway, so we're six days in. I haven't had any sugar, carb, fucking fruit, anything right. in six days. And I've like changed like my total diet. And I don't, I think I've gained weight <laughs> somehow. Like I just, I don't feel like things are happening. I like the supernatural effect of the keto. The idea that once you hit this fucking ketosis, yeah. then all of a sudden your weight just falls off. You go off. into this place called ketosis. It's like the place where, I've always wanted to go. And it's, and it's such a, like when the people on the group that I'm on are like, I'm, I'm, you know, there's all these signs of being in ketosis and like, like you get like bad breath. Your urine smells yeah, like worse. Yeah, all this stuff that sounds horrible. But then supposedly your the weight just like drops off you really fast because, um, how does it work? Because you can't, since you don't have any carbs and sugar in your system, which is what is usually being burned. Um, your body that, switches to fat. Your body s- switches to then burning that fat. And we're actually part of this diet is we're eating like a shitload of fat. I know. Which I'm finding to be kind of nauseating. Like I get, like I'm eating a ton. I love protein. and um, But you can't eat too much protein because then like that'll that's not good for you. And so they want you to eat, as weird as it sounds, tons of freaking fat. Like Bacon fat and lard. And, and whole eggs and whipping and cream. Wh- and whipping cream and mayo. And it's like, and if, you, and if you're if you like not doing well on this diet, they tell you to like eat more fat. That's what they say? They say that if you're, if you don't have energy or you, you're not losing weight, eat more. F- it's just, it's, f- your whole mindset around eating gets warped. And, um. The, the the Dave Dave and I are saving grace, which is such a cool thing that people should try. Is called bu- the bulletproof coffee, which has become this new thing for us, where you're supposed to drink um, one to two tablespoons of coconut oil, one to two tablespoons of butter, coffee, and heavy whipping cream, and that should be your morning coffee. And people. Live by freaking it. Freaking swear by it that it gives you energy and like. I like it. I, I do it without the butter because butter in the coffee just seems like too much. And I don't do one or two tablespoons of coconut oil. I just do like a teaspoon and a half. Right. But it still feels so greasy. It's just so. It's just so gross. So I mean, it is working. I, I have to say, I felt like my head was together, but then on my catering job today, I forgot the fucking silverware at the store. I forgot the trays for the side dishes at the store. I forgot the fucking cutting board. And it's a carving event. We didn't I had to call my dad to come down to the event with the cutting boards from his house today. You should put a post on the group. I'm not posting and in the ask group. that if it affects your memory. Dopey Nation, if you're on keto or you think this is crazy, write an email to dopeypodcast at <laughs> gmail.com. I'll send you my 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 keto, uh, keto brownie recipe we made today. It was good. But the fucked up thing is like this whole week people have been posting in the Dopey Nation all this like serious food stuff. Some dude posted 
fucking the brookie made with Reese's peanut butter cups. And I like that kind of thing. Somebody wrote me an email and sent me an ad for Trader Joe brookies. I'm like, leave me alone. Yeah, and people sometimes will send Dave like chocolate, like fans will send Dave chocolate. Don't do that until he's done ketoing. Dude, when I'm done, if I can do keto for a month, I'm going to get fat as a house when it's done. Right, because that's what happens. People put on so much weight when they stop. So you're in trouble. Well, we'll see what happens. Anyway. Sorry if that was too much keto talk. But. Yeah, I don't know. I wanna, I'd like to hear your opinion about ketosis, uh, the magical land of ketosis. And, like, do, do you guys ever feel ashamed about taking care of yourself? Like, I think that's a weird thing. Well, that's also- Like, I don't like to brush my hair. I don't like to tuck in my shirt. I like to be right. like a mess. It's like it's, it makes me comfortable. Well, that's, I mean, where you can make it an interesting conversation is that it's self- Self-loathing? No, not self-loathing. It's, it's like the opposite of that, almost, the, uh, being on a diet. It's like you're like putting self-care. so much You're putting so much time and energy and effort into yourself, into what you're eating that like, you, I feel like what you're saying is you're not used to ever treating Karen. yourself in that way. But the thing about ketosis and keto and all this bullshit is it's not like moderation. It's not like I'm going to eat healthy. And, and 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 cut my intake. It's saying I'm going to go crazy extreme so I can lose weight as fast as possible and see if I can get into this weird revving overdrive place. But I also wonder. This is, adds to like a the an addiction piece is that I do wonder if having an addiction history or having you know being an addict, if that almost makes it. Like if you're almost enjoying this more, not enjoying it, but if you're if almost making you better at it because you have to be, um, you have to just dive full full fledged into it. Like it has right. to be all consuming. Right, it has right. to take over because this diet, like I know we keep talking about it, but it's pretty much taken over our lives for the last week, and it's actually been kind of, I've kind of enjoyed the escape of it. Like it's all right. I think about, and I and I'm I I've been cooking. I mean it's in a good way, but. Like I'm on these groups, you know, it's actually become, I've been like a couple people reached out to me, friends I know who did it, who are doing, trying to do it again and they want to come on board. And so it's almost like, I don't know. Do you feel like that too? It's. Well, I think that the difference is like Lynn, when we got on it, she like started ordering all these keto products, like keto fat bomb snacks and the keto brownie. And like, and I'm like, (laughs) I'm not going to fucking eat that stuff. And she's like, but Dave, it's keto. And I'm like, if I eat one of them, I'm going right, to eat the whole box ex- and I'm going to blow ketosis. And I think it's very similar to, a, you know, to being in recovery right. where you can't take anything. Right, and, that's, and that's why Dave is kicking ass. And because uh, he's not, he's like so within all the perimeters of what you have to be in. We won't. I'm not looking it. for. I'm but not I'm looking for che- the. I'm the, cheating a little bit here. Like I made these stupid brownies. Yes, they're a keto brownies, but they're definitely not. I mean, they're definitely not 100 percent great to be eating on the diet. I hope you didn't fuck up my ketosis with this fucking brownie. But you haven't done anything wrong in six days. I know it's. Weird. I've had a glass of wine here and there. Like you're not supposed to do any of that stuff. Um, you're the queen of the keto loophole. You love the loophole and keto. I want some keto groupies. <laughs> that, is that what you're? That's it, why I'm on dopey right now. Because you want to get some. I want some keto groupies. All right, enough with the keto. Now we're gonna do a little uh, end of the show dopey business. I, I thank you all for bearing with this incredibly <laughs> long marathon journey of dopey. 
And um, But I want to do what we always do, which is a voicemail and email and a review. So why don't we do uh, a voicemail first? It's a very short one. Here it is. Hey, Dave. Um, I have an interesting story I'd love to tell. Um, one time I got some, uh, I got some Vivance from a friend. I had never done any kind of like stimulant other than caffeine. And I got it and I ended up staying up about 40 hours. I don't even know how much I took, but I think I took way more than I, <laughs> I thought I did. By the end of the 40 hours that I was up, I really want to go to sleep. And at that, at that time I was taking a lot of Benadryl as well, like recreationally. So I was like, okay, I'll take about 12 Benadryl, which is 300 milligrams of DPH. And then I smell something, which I think is a gas leak. I start freaking the fuck out because it's 3 a.m. I don't know what to do. So I call the fire department. And by the time the fire department get here, I'm tripping ass. Like I'm just, I'm seeing like dogs in the shadows and shit. I'm seeing so much weird ass shit. When the firemen start walking up the road, I think they have dogs on them. I'm seeing so much shit. And so I bring them up to the third floor of the apartment. They come in and they check the fucking, like where the, where the heater and all that shit is. And like the, um, like the, all that, all that like utility shit. (laughs) And they look at me and they're like, sir, (laughs) you guys don't even have gas. (laughs) Ah, fuck. Toodles, man. I love that. That's really funny. He he was smelling so bad and he was so fucked up that he smelled himself. And then it turned out he didn't even have a gas connection when he told, called the gas company. I love that. Um, this I love a, how much he loved telling his story. Well, he broke down. Yeah. You know, I love that too. <laughs> um, everybody send in dopey voicemails. Keep them around five minutes. Make them funny and crazy. Uh, we need voicemails. Now I'm going to have my lovely, lovely partner, Linda, read a sad email. Latosis. That can be my new name. <laughs> You're really fucking... <laughs> she's fucking obsessed with this fucking shit. Here, read this, please. It's not about keto. Uh, um, Okay. Dave, I just heard this American Life episode and wanted to reach out. I've been sober for eight years, and last year my best friend died of an overdose, fentanyl. He was the first guy I met in college. We used together for almost a decade, and then we got sober together. Ben, my friend, had six years of sobriety before he passed away. We started a tech company to help others get sober, and when it failed, he decided to go back out. He died within a few months of deciding to try a life of not being sober. I just wanted to connect with you and tell you I've lived through the exact experience and you were the first person I've met that had almost the exact story as me. My wife found Ben's body and for the last year we've been coping with the lasting effects of this. I'm sad and you had to go through this and just wanted to let you know you were not alone. Nash. All right, Nash, thank you and I'm really sorry about your friend. Yeah, he posted, he sent a picture of... His friend Ben, too, and he looks like a really nice guy. This is the time we're living in where, where everybody, uh, lots of people die from mm-hmm. this thing, and it's just uh, a horrible thing. And uh, thank you for the email. I hear from so many people these days um, talking about their friends and their family who die, and it's uh, it's very special that we have this community for the people that, that manage to live through it, and, and somehow a lot of the people who survive... Um, who survive the addiction, but the families of the people who don't somehow get strength from you guys. And I'm just, I, I'm, you know, it means a lot to me that we're all in touch. 
and that this thing is happening. And when This American Life plays the show again, a ton of people listen and a ton of people draw from the well of the Dopey Nation, and it's really, really cool. Yeah. And it means a lot to me. Um, This episode has taken us all over the place. We've gone, you know, a million miles. And before we go, I just want to read a review, the Dopey Review of the Week. So this is from This American Life listener, Chelsea Pod. Hi, Dave. Five stars, by the way. I started listening after the second airing of This American Life. The second airing. The episode on Dopey had me bawling in my car on my way to work. It really hit me hard. My husband and I got sober in January 2018. For at least a year, I claimed I was sober to help him because I didn't have a problem. Well, that's not true at all. I for sure had a problem, and this is not my first attempt at sobriety. It's working out pretty well. I'm thankful not to have alcohol in the house now that my kids are teens, but I am scared for them because they come from addict parents. Anyway, long story short, I love your podcast. I'm so sad, as I am sure you are, about Todd and Chris. You have found your calling. Keep up the good work. Oh, and you are definitely an influencer. So thank you for the review. If you guys um, can, leave five-star reviews. I I think it does something for us. Subscribe to the show. I don't know what it does, but do it. Subscribe to the show and fucking um, send an email, send in voicemails, fucking follow Dopey in every place. Support Cormac on Reddit. Linda, thank you so much for giving me uh, a beautiful life and, and 20 minutes of Dopey. Thanks for having me. Was it a joy for you? I had a great time. And Linda looks like she's going to come out with a podcast very soon. Oh, stop. Called Motherload. <laughs> on living in the suburbs as a mother and things that mothers go through, including ketosis. <laughs> right? Well, we'll When see. should they look for Motherload, Lynn? It's, I don't even know. In the, in the... Spring of 2025? In the, in the summer of 2020. No way, really? Yeah. Wow. Look for Linda's podcast in the summer of 2020. Stay strong, <laughs> Dopey Nation. And oh, before we go, there's this dude who has a band called Alien Thing, and he sent me a song about his friends that died from overdoses, and it's a pretty fucking good song. I liked mm, it. Okay. So we're going to close the show with that. Then I'll put Good So Bad on the end because that's my deal with Chris. And uh, we say, stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. And here is, I hope it's called Alien Thing. You want to say goodbye? Goodbye, everybody. So John's in the city and he's up to no good. We think it might be something serious. On the couch Playing video games He thinks I'm thinking Something awful He takes a break From the dishes Just to scratch his ass Now we're on To something serious Like Do you really think A 6.6% decrease In Colorado's opioid related Overdoses isn't correlated to a nationwide increase of anti-marijuana lobby. You think I'm pissed? I'll tell you why my friends keep dying by the dozen, which is slightly annoying. Okay, so Eric Lewis Charles took a bullet to the dome. McCall, McCall took five.
drive to the chest And the rest are off heroin The rest are off of heroin The rest are off of heroin We've got a big, 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 big problem Hey, it any mind. 
city far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds. Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad. And I wanna call my dad. And it's all I ever had. 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 And these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And I wanna call my dad. And it's all I ever had.